Cinema Oddities, late night movies with Rob, Ben, and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities, where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Ben. And if I throw a dog a bone, I don't want to know if it tastes good or not. I have to say, I really love that phrase as something where... I did not remember that phrase. I've seen this movie before. Everybody knows um, we're talking about this movie because it's in the title of the episode. I've seen it before. I've seen it before many times by myself, with other people. It's been in my, you know, movie lexicon for a while now. I cannot believe that when I was younger, that line didn't stick with me. There's so many times in my life, whether it be professional or just through friends or through acquaintances, that I should have had in my repertoire, if I throw you a bone, I don't want to know if it tastes good or not. That is a fantastic fucking line right there. <laughs> Would you agree, Ben? <laughs> uh, I, I do agree, and I um, the, the line has always stuck out to me when watching the movie, but it, I, I'm surprised it never occurred to me to use it myself. Right? Yes, yes. So With some of the other goofball lines that have stuck... Like, I know in the Miss March episode, you said, Ben, you were like, I always like to say, ha-ha, stupid firemen can't turn their trucks around. <laughs> Why did that one get, go into your repertoire and this one didn't, you know? What is wrong yeah, with serious. us as a species? <laughs> Seriously. Um, we're homies, bros. We're homies, bro. Lock it down, which yeah. is not even correct. Yes, exactly. Lock it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lock it up for some reason. I don't know why lock it down is what I always but anyway so it's i have to agree that that is one of the the many quotes of this movie that should have that i should be repeating almost daily uh and i'm not which I, is yeah I, i'm with you and i'm so glad that we chose to do this i mean it actually goes back to when we did the uh the the uh the crank episode where we talked we mentioned snatch we mentioned uh guy Ritchie and stuff like that and you know we talked about how much we loved that movie back when you know we were younger but i think in that episode we both said we had not seen it for a very long time we didn't give any like specific time frame or anything i think for me it might have been about you know before i moved to colorado so that's at least 7 8 years ago type of thing um i don't know when the last time you saw it was but I know I watched this a lot when I was younger, and I'm so shocked once again that I didn't like. Maybe, maybe this is the most you know toxic masculine thing I've ever said. I'm surprised I didn't learn more from this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Rec- I don't think we watched this movie together. I don't think in, so either. Yeah. In Ohio, so the so the time that I, last time I would have watched it was probably before I came to Ohio. But it's always stuck with us, and that's what we've said. You know, not yeah. only in um the the crank slash cronk episode excuse me but in the um on our patreon when we discussed wrath of man one of the more recent guy richie jason satham joints we were i know we were all like snatch is great snatch is awesome we love snatch and it just turns out that we've just been keeping this thought in our head for like 10 plus years you know <laughs> well you know it doesn't hurt that snatch is so close to a word that i use for vagina so whenever i'm like i love snatch you know it just feels right well that that was going to be my question, Ben. I don't know if you've picked up on this uh, pattern we've been doing, but Crank was Crunk, Mechanic was Mechanic, so Snatch has to be Vagina. Ain't that correct? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, 
I, I would go with Snooch, I guess. But. Snooch. I was also going to say Sniz, um, referencing the South Park episode where um, Hillary Clinton has a snoof up or Sniz or whatever that episode is for like, oh, season oh boy. seven or something like that. You know. <laughs> no, I I don't think that we can that we can uh, denigrate Snatch in that way. I think Snatch deserves the name it was given. I am a hundred percent in agreement because. Um, uh, still, to me, I mean, when if you say the word snatch to me, of course context clues exist, but I still very much um, uh, first and foremost equate it to this movie ever since I've seen it, you know, back in the day. And we'll get into our history a little bit more, uh, how we found this and, and how many times we watched it and stuff. But I, I really do. I still like in my day-to-day life, like I like the word, like I snatched it out of your hands or I snatched that, you know, or something like that. I, I use that as a non-sexual term. I'm just reminded of of my high the boss I had in high school. I was like, "Hey, Gabe, have you ever seen Snatch?" And he looked at me and said, "I don't watch porn." <laughs> <laughs> and Ben's response was, "No, in real life, man." <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen real Snatch? <laughs> okay, that's yeah. Okay, so I figured I'd get that joke out of the way. Um, you're absolutely right. Snooch would be the closest thing, but even Snooch is not. Tainted's not the right word. When I when you say snooch, I think of snoochy boochies, you know, yeah, from Jay and Silent Bob. So this might be, you know, might be. Oh wow, we're breaking new ground. The third in this Jason Statham series that we don't fucking say the title in a goofy way. Oh no, you know, this is snatch. We're talking snatch. I wanted to just run through before we get into uh, like our big thoughts on this movie, our history and all that stuff. I know we have a lot to talk about, Ben, not only with this movie, but with Statham, with Guy Ritchie. Uh, This is going to be the first main feed Guy Ritchie movie, which I'm really excited about. I just wanted to say that I was really close to at the start of this episode, after you introduced yourself, I was going to do what I very rarely do, tweak a line from this movie to make it fit into the formula of when I introduce Mm -hmm. myself. And I was going to say, after you introduce yourself, respond with, and I know Ben was really named after a famous 19th century ballet dancer. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first note I have written down for the entire movie. Well, that's not true. Is that that Tommy? Yeah, Tommy's named after the ballet dancer. He likes to tell people he's named after a gun. The gun, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I just, we're going to get to it, and maybe this is the way to set the stage. There's these other lines I really love. There's actually three out of the six I had written down were from Dennis Farina, one of my favorite actors ever, who plays Cousin Avi in this movie. I had written down, I don't like leaving my own country, Doug, and I especially don't like leaving it for anything less than warm, sandy beaches and cocktails with little straw hats. And I also really like his later on in the movie when uh, what I think the character's name is Rosebud is shot type of thing in an off camera thing. And he goes, I'm going to get you to a nice Jewish doctor. Looks at Bullet Tooth Tony. Find my friend a Jewish doctor. (laughs) I I think he even says, find my friend a nice Jewish doctor. Like he repeats nice. Oh, my God. That's great. And then I have the other one. The third one is um, I'm not looking for Vegas. I'm not looking for legal. I'm looking for Frankie fucking four fingers. (laughs) (laughs) Dennis Farina is an amazing actor and um he he's he's been great i mean if you look into his history we've never done a michael mann movie on this podcast i would love to maybe do it one day um ben i i I actually posed to you we cover a michael mann movie once and you shot it down because i said i only want to do the first minute of it it's the beginning of collateral where jason statham hands a briefcase to tom cruise 
And ah. I was like, that's that's it. I was like, if we have to do a Statham movie, we do Collateral. And you were like, uh, you were like, is Jason Statham in that? And I was like, yeah, for. 30 seconds, you know, and you were like, <laughs> no, we're not doing that, you know. But Dennis Farina was discovered by Michael Mann. He was an actual, like, Chicago police officer, became retired, became this actor, and then eventually did, I think, a three- or four-season stint as a detective on OG Law & Order back in the mid-'90s. And, okay, um, I, th- I thought that he did. Yeah, yeah, I love Dennis Farina and... Cousin Avi in this movie, I mean, I have so many quotes written down in my notes that I won't even begin to scroll through them because we'll get to them, of course. He is fantastic, and there's a good reason that three out of my six opening quotes are attributed to him. <laughs> I, I'm i surprised. I'm especially I mean, I guess I'm not because there are a lot of great quotes in this movie, but I fully expected I fucking hate Pikes to be on your list. I, Just because of how often it is said it in this is, movie. It is said, and it is said often. And I'm glad you're you're mentioning off the bat how often lines of dialogue are repeated and stated and placed in this movie. Because that's going to be a big part of our discussion. I think that the guy, Richie, of it all and his writing has to come through um, a little more than the Statham in this movie. But the, we're going to get to the Statham. But I don't really like – I. I think this movie actually gave me the feeling for the first time, which I, I might have done before. I might have not never done it. I really don't remember. I'd have to go back and listen um, to all these episodes. I don't really keep track of my opening quotes. I actually had a hang-up when I was picking quotes uh, to start this episode off with, with using curse words in the open opening quote. Because, as you know, Ben, after I said, if I throw a dog a bone, I don't want to know if it tastes good or not, the quote actually continues and excels itself, where Bricktop says, and if you stop me from walking again, I'll cut your fucking Jacobs off. Or if you stop me while I'm walking again, I'll cut your fucking Jacobs off. I actually had a little bit of reservations about using the F word in my opening quote, which I know sounds weird. Because most times, even if I don't use the F word in my opening quote, there's like a good 20% chance in the next two seconds of people listening, I'm going to say like, whatever, you know? And so I'm like, but there was some weird line I didn't want to cross there. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. I I find it strange, but I'm picking up what you're putting down. You are absolutely right. I fucking hate pikeys gets said to great extent. So we're setting the stage. This is a great overture. I think, though, correct me if I'm wrong, and please push back on me, Ben. Out of all the things we have to talk about this movie, Statham, Jason Statham, the the topic of this series, I think he's kind of the thing we can just get out of the way. We have the least to say about him now. We did his career for like an hour in the Kronk episode. We we did his like action man performance in the Machanics episode, or as you say, the... I don't even, you, ma, ma, yeah, I can't even pronounce it right because you're pronouncing it wrong, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> like but, Bolshevik. Um, but, but now, I mean, sure, we should talk about his performance, of course, but I think that goes with the movie. I think that our thoughts on Snatch and Guy Ritchie are going to supersede the Statham. Do you feel the same way or do you have any big takes on Statham in this movie? No, you're probably right. Uh, I, the one thing I, I really think that sticks out in this is what this is. Is this Statham's first movie? This is his second, second after movie. Lockstock and after Two Smoking Lockstock. Barrels. Okay. Yeah. Statham has an incredible amount of speaking uh, in this movie, whether it be narration or yes. on screen. And I, I would say that he does a fantastic job of being 
British. <laughs> that was good. You caught me off guard there. Off guard there. Uh, well, off guard there, Governor. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, of course, the opening of the movie he goes. Oi, governor, my name's Turkish. Six bong, you know, right? Um, <laughs> at least our schools aren't Call of Duty. Um, no, in, in all honesty, I love his opening monologue. The literal first line of the movie is, my name is Turkish. That's insane. Right. Um, and he follows it up with, what do I know about diamonds? I'm a boxing promoter, you know? And I used to be a happy boxing promoter. Yeah, yeah. And you are, okay, let's do it. Before we get into this whole movie, let's get the Statham out of the way. Because we're in the Statham series. We we need to devote time to him. I'm sure as we go through more of the movie, we'll hit on him. But I figured, as we mentioned at the end of the uh, the Mechanics episode, we should discuss the fact that as Jason Statham has become a bigger movie star... In America, of course, I think that qualifier is important, as he's become Action Man 101, basically, one of his biggest criticisms that we talked about in Crank and in The Mechanics is that he is kind of depthless and emotionless, and he is very surface level, and he's a he's a glorified stuntman. I know we talked about that in the Crank episode, which is which with his thoughts on stuntmen. And I'm actually really glad to get to one of his earlier performances where he is Guy Ritchie's muse. He's he's Guy Ritchie's you know guy, which is stupid to say, but you know everybody knows what I'm saying. You know, I have to say, Ben. I was really watching out for it. I wanted to get a, a a finger on the pulse of Jason Statham's performance in this movie. I think he is incredible. I think he is doing exactly what the movie is asked for or is asking for, and I think he's doing it well, and I think he is pulling off every single moment that is you know, necessitated towards him. I think that anybody who says he is a depthless or emotionless actor has never seen this movie. I think if you want to complain about Jason Statham as an actor, you should complain more about the roles that people are paying him hundreds of millions of dollars to be in. If you gave him a serious role tomorrow, I think he would be able to pull it off. What do you think? Push back, agree? Your thoughts? Uh, no, I totally agree. His performance in this is fantastic. Um, his delivery is, is there's emotion in it. His um, like his choices, what he's doing with his face, and in, in like the scene where Tommy and him are are um, about to walk in to the situation with Bricktop, and they're they're basically dead. And Tommy's like, "Why aren't you more afraid?" Like that whole scene is is phenomenal. I I really am. Am, was surprised at his ability to pull that off and also surprised that it was so early in his career that he was able to do it. Absolutely. And I'm really glad you mentioned that scene about, you know, when when uh, that scene and also mentioning his facial expressions because I think, and this is something I, I actually don't know if you and I have talked about before, Ben, but in, in 2000 when this movie came out, early 2001 when it came out in America, there was a, a slight delay, you know, that type of thing. Um, some of the history I want to get to that about how this, like, crossed over to America. But I think that most people who criticize Statham as an actor in this day and age, in, in our contemporary, you know, modern day and age, and I would say that being 2023, of course, but, like, even back to, like, 2016 when the um, Machanic Resurrection came out, I think that we have lost, as a culture, critically, the, the understanding critically of what micro-expressions are. I think that there is a big thing about, like, 
old school acting. And and hear me out, Ben, because this is something, like I said, I don't think we ever talked about. I think that back in the day, there was so much that could be done with an actor's face. And an actor having micro-expressions. Like, you know, what I mean by that is, sure, an actor can be scared and, you know, slap their hands to their cheeks and go, ah, like a Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone with the aftershave type of thing. And that's a macro-expression. But micro-expressions have always been important to acting because we as a species understand how other people's faces work to some extent. Maybe it's not always a one-to-one translation. We always have, though, some filter and understanding of how other people's facial expressions make us feel. And I think that when Jason Statham became Action Man, every critic was like, he's emotionless, he's blank, he's nothing. And when I watched... This movie, and now giving me thoughts back to Crank, well, maybe not so much Crank, but the mechanics, I'm like, no, Jason Statham has a face and knows how to use it. He knows his micro-expressions. And this movie is a masterclass of Statham in micro-expressions. Because Statham is in a world of gangsters that can never show emotion, because emotion, or I should rather say change in emotion, is weaknessness weakness and the way he still plays that you can feel the fear in his eyes the fear in his lips changing his nostrils flaring is amazing it's a master class in what micro expression should be do you know what i'm saying uh, i do and i totally agree that's something that i hadn't considered it from the aspect of like his other movies but even looking back in crank he does make micro expressions. Yeah, yeah. I said not so much Crank because Crank, he's kind of jacked up the whole time. Yes. Literally yeah. and figuratively. But like even the mechanic, you know, he's he's doing those same micro expressions. And it's it's a bummer to me. And it's something we talked about last year on the podcast. Zach and I did the movie Nope, the new Jordan Peele movie Nope. And at the end of that, we actually talked about some criticism where people were saying Daniel Kaluuya was a blank slate, like an emotionless figure. And Zach and I both disagreed with these criticisms and saying, no, like, the way he blinks makes you think of things. And that led me to say that I think most critics these days, and I would actually like to pick your brain on this, Ben, have um, institutionalized autism, where they are so used to gigantic, overreactive YouTube videos that if somebody has a twinge in their face, it's written off as not getting as much sleep as they should have. That you need somebody to literally pull their hair out, eyes go wide, scream to think, Oh, are you afraid? No, micro-expressions are still the most important thing to us as a species, and, and to acting, I think. One of the most, of course. So, one thing about this, and I, I, don't, I can't speak too much to what critics, what, it, what has influenced critics recently, mm-hmm. uh, but one thing that comes to mind about this is that when you're giving a stage performance, people aren't actually close enough to see your face yes. most of the time. That's where it needs uh, to be bigger, is what you're so saying. So you have to do very exaggerated motions. Yeah. Like, that's that's... Stage acting 101 is exaggerate the fuck out of everything. Sure. So I wouldn't be surprised if that rolled over into movie acting. Just like from the very beginning. Like if if right out the gate we were just never set to act in front of a camera the way that we might as a real person. Mm -hmm. And and even to some degree you have to exaggerate things just just so that it's obvious what you're doing um, for acting. And I mean of course – the position of the camera and stuff can go a long way in, sure. in making making that work without an overly exaggerated um, movement. So, so I don't know. Um, 
like it, it could be just some kind of holdover from that where where critics expect and require these like big grandiose movements like i i don't know the history of micro expressions in cinema i don't really know either but i understand what you're saying and that's a really good point i didn't really think about that i i think there was kind of like from the transition from stage to cinema i think there was that that kind of like you know, turn into micro expressions, the ability to show a giant on screen. And giant what I mean by giant is like a close up, you know? Like the silver screen shows somebody's entire face, which a, a theater can never do. Right. I think that we're getting away from that now because of I, I and you know, maybe this is gonna lead us into a, a as I'm thinking of it now, I think this might lead us into a, a crazy rabbit hole. I think that there is something so specific about the reaction era of social media that people don't look for micro expressions or look for facial expressions they look for the wildest and wildest and biggest reactions um well i can certainly tell you that that is more or less what's big on twitch sure sure i i I would say youtube as well um certain youtube channels uh when i say channels i don't mean specific users or content creators i mean channels in like if this is what you like, this is what you get, you know? <laughs> sure. I So I, um, I'm I'm kind of out of the loop when it comes to YouTube content. Like, I don't know what the fuck people use YouTube for. The only thing I ever use YouTube for is to watch clips of things that were on TV or are um, <laughs> news or, like, lectures, like, I'll use YouTube for. So, like, I'm, I you know, I, I see some YouTube, like, my, my wife is has a, a couple of streamers that she really likes to watch. And some of them do like big facial expression stuff, and and I I do think that that's what like attracts more users today, um, but I I don't know if I'm like prepared to say that that is leaked into Hollywood yet in okay. terms of how movies are being made. I think if anything, maybe what we're getting is is more a consequence of of the Marvel phenomena in mm-hmm. in movie like the types of stories that would lean on micro expressions just aren't being told as much that's a good point I, I, and i think that that's actually a better way to get at what i was describing is that the modern hollywood has drifted away from an actor's micro expressions which used to be so important because the mainstream thing that drives audiences to go see movies is now more of the spectacle it's not those character moments because, I mean, like if Tony Stark needed to feel sad in Endgame, you see him basically like give a big fucking meme frown that's Snapchat filtered, you know? Like I don't think Robert Robert Downey Jr., we're not – Ben and I are not disagreeing on this and not saying otherwise. He's a good actor. He's surprisingly a fantastic actor, you know? But there's no way that, like, Kevin Feige from his high tower of the Marvel Cinematic Universe was like, no, no, Tony. And, and yes, Kevin Feige is calling RDJ Tony Stark, you know, Tony, you frown, frown bigger, frown bigger, you know? Because <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if people can see past that spectacle. And, and that, that would be the thing that I, that I would say is probably more impactful at the moment for, for why – if there is a reason that sure. that you know certain critics are are um, not in tune with with what we're calling micro expressions, mm-hmm. which I which I actually think is a scholastic term as well. Um, oh yeah, yeah, scholastic like the book fair is what you're saying. Yes. Oh yeah. Of course. Yeah, of you course. can buy okay. you can buy books page. at the micro expression. Yeah, everybody, you know, check out um you know uh, three weeks from now, March twenty uh, third, um, Cinemodity Scholastic Book Fair. Everybody come out to Times Square, in New York, for that. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I'm I'm 
intrigued by the idea that that it's something that is not getting as much respect as it ought to. But at the same time, even in like the mechanic movies, while he is giving a micro expressive performance, it's not to the same level that it is in Snatch. No, absolutely not. And I think that is um, the Snatch versus the mechanics is um, definitely a um, an artifact of its time type of thing. You know, uh, Snatch being two thousand and uh, the me- mechanics being 2011, 2016, that type of thing. When when was uh, Memento? 2001, a year okay, after so, this. Yeah. yeah, so so that's kind of like a... That movie has like a similar feeling in terms of like the way things are shot and, and the, the way that we interact with characters through sure. the camera, that sure. kind of thing. Yes, 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 yes. And, and Christo- Christopher Nolan has always been one... And Christopher Nolan, I still think, even in Tenet, you know, his last movie, he, he does a great job of using micro expressions but i think he has found a way to be like i want my actors to do what they do and and you know know what they know but when his characters have micro expressions christopher nolan would be like oh is your eye twitching is your mouth twitching i'm gonna make sure that that is the close-up shot you know he's like, i'm gonna make sure the audience knows that you're having a micro expression yeah to some degree i mean you have to you have to have the camera focused on the right thing for that to come across as any as as intentional and and not be misconstrued as you know what you were saying earlier being being too sleepy or yeah. something. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a thing of our time. I think that you know, I actually mentioned to Ben before this actual recording that I was watching um some musicals and stuff like that. I, I watched all that jazz, the Bob Fosse movie, uh, Bob Fosse making a movie about his life, that type of thing, and that movie was that movie blew me away. And that movie, like, has micro-expressions play out on wide angles. Like, that's a really relationship-heavy movie about, like, you know, well, why can the guy cheat around, but he gets angry when the girl does? Like, it's really, like, basic shit like that. But all the feelings come across so well, even in, like, a big wide-angle shot where this guy's face and the way he moves his face is just, what, 20, 15, 20% of the screen, but I still get what he's saying. And I think that the, um... I don't know if you'd feel the same way. I'm not saying you would feel the same way about seeing that, Ben. But I think the idea is that now micro-expressions have become macro-expressions because of, like, the Christopher Nolan thing of, like, oh, my character's eyebrow's going to twitch. Got to have a close-up for, you know, three seconds or, you know, uh, 30 frames, something like that. Got to show it. Got to make sure it's in there subliminally type of thing. I'm just, like, heavily reminded of, of The Rock's eyebrow shit from when he was a wrestler. Okay, well, I'm very glad you say that because not only does that play into what we're talking about and how pronounced the eyebrow of The Rock was and how every fucking kid in my, like, fourth and fifth grade class was doing it back in New York, you know, when it was popular. But I think that, once again, I don't know why. I hope our cinema audience likes it, but I kind of felt like, oh, my God, should I bring this up again? But we should. We have talked about The Rock and Jason Statham in comparison a lot in our Crank episode, in our Rock series, and all this stuff. And one of the things I wanted to bring up, and I'm glad you brought up the um, the eyebrow movement, is that I uh, we talked about in the Crank episode, Crank, sorry, that The Rock comes across as cringy, or The Rock comes across as using his charisma, where Jason Statham comes across as more natural and non-cringy. I actually had the thought, Jason Statham is directly delivering comedic lines in this movie. Did you find them 
cringy, overbearing, or did you find them natural and funny? You know, that type of thing. I, the, the one I want to highlight before I actually throw it over you, Ben, for your, your full thoughts is um, right at the beginning of the movie, I think that uh, Jason Statham says, like, how am I going to run a uh, boxing managing company or whatever the hell he says out of this piece of shit? Cut to a caravan that, you know, has a, this weird old guy grilling sausages outside of it, you know? Two and minutes, Turkish. Two minutes, five minutes, you know, that type of thing. Yes, absolutely. It was two minutes, five minutes ago. As they walk up to the caravan, Tommy says, you know, well, what's wrong with this one? And Jason Statham tries to open the door, ends up ripping the entire door off, and Jason Statham says, oh, nothing, Tommy. It's tip-top. I'm just not sure about the color. Right. That's, that is clearly a comedic line. What did you think about its delivery? What did you think about Jason Statham delivering that line when it is so like we, you and I can't even argue that that's like a a blase or basic line that turned into comedy that is meant to be comedy. Yeah, it, it's well, it's the kind of comedy it's it's the kind of comedy you might expect from your like dickhead friends. Um, Sarcastic comedy, yeah, yeah, right. So it's it it feels naturalistic not only. In its delivery, which it does feel very natural in its delivery, uh, but it feels natural in that it's the kind of thing that would come about naturally. It, it's not that you're around somebody who is particularly funny and they are like twisting the the reality mm-hmm. to you know be delivered in a funny fashion. It's it's that he's he's just being a sarcastic asshole and that's funny. So I don't know. I think it's like natural all around. So how would you compare that to the cringiness of the rock comedy we talked about? fucking so many months ago which which in real time was two weeks ago but you know you know what i mean man <laughs> it's not cringy at all no no right it, it comes across as i think like you said like two two goofy goofers having a goof right <laughs> <laughs> yes so i i think that i think that that's what i wanted to hone in on more as we're continuing to talk about Satham's performance is um that even when he's given something comedic, and I know that's what I talked about in the Crank episode, in the Mechanics episode, I talked about the fact that even if he is gives, given something comedic, it's it's comedic only because of what we know about the universe. So when he's funny in Crank, it's because he's the one who's like, literally, I have no what, no idea what's going on with my body. I got to deal with this. And like, the universe creates the comedy, you know? Mm-hmm. Same thing with the mechanic. When he's dry and witty in the mechanic, which is very rare in those two movies, you know, that wasn't even really a talking point for us um, when we discussed the mechanic movies. This is the first time we're talking Statham where he is given a comedic line. And I think that there is something special to be said about him where he doesn't give it charisma. He doesn't give it any extra spice. He doesn't try and spice it up or something. He doesn't do any hand movements. He keeps it witty and bland. And maybe that's the Britishness of it, but that is also what I love about it in comparison to The Rock, who tries to fucking be like, you know, oh, you gave me a comedic line? Well, if you gave me a comedic line, I'm gonna try and give you an advertisement for my tequila brand at the same time. And it's like, shut up, you loser. Do what you're told to do. You're an actor. <laughs> well, I, we all we all know somebody who has been in the process of telling you a story and and they get to a point where to them for whatever reason whatever they have said is funny and they expect you to laugh ben uh, hesitated at the start of that sentence because ben it was like we all know 
<clears throat> Somebody. <laughs> Rob. Okay. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> and um, I, I can personally say that for me, there are a few things that are that socially uncomfortable. Sure. When I know that somebody expects me to laugh and I don't know why. Could I give you an example of one thing I think is – I agree with you, but I could, could I give you an example of one thing I think is fully socially more uncomfortable? Sure. Singing at retail workers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, also going into full song during a dinner date. Yeah, there are there things. Go. Yes, yes. Okay, that... just wanted to say that. But, no, you were absolutely right that if that happened, it'd be like, oh, I get – you're trying to be funny and you realized kind of like half a second too late that you weren't funny. So you tried to double down to make it funny. Right. Well, Either that or it's like, sometimes it's like, like I've definitely experienced it with people who are really well versed in a particular topic and they make a joke that makes sense in that topic. And I'm just like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> Cue back to what? Eight years ago, where Ben and I were at a Wendy's, and I was yelling at Ben many things, and I thought I was funny, and Ben literally looked me in the eyes and said, Rob, it's exhausting being your friend. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Q, eight years later, we're still doing this, so um, That's right. hey, there's hope for all of you losers out there. <laughs> no, but I totally understand what you're saying, Ben, is that... Um, that there is some level to bring it back to Statham's performance, that there is there is no, like requirement of him to get validation or feedback to what he's saying. And I think that's what's right. set up early in the movie with him and Tommy, his him and Tommy's dynamic in this movie is that um they play like um brothers. Uh, Statham's the older brother, Tommy's the younger brother, and you know they um they're um uh riffing each other's chops. They're they're goofing each other goobers, that type of thing. Yes, and and that's exactly right is is that Statham's delivery requires nothing from me. Exactly. Whereas maybe The Rock's delivery and I think, I'm feels so like glad it wants you, something I'm so glad you put it that way because that goes back to what we said in the Crank episode is the idea that, you know, The Rock has baggage. And even if Jason Statham in 2000 had done only one movie prior to this, had been this weird market salesman slash model in 2000, we're watching it from the 2023 lens now. Statham still has no fucking baggage. Right. The I mean, the closest thing he has to baggage is that we know he plays certain types of movies. Yeah, sure, sure. And that's that's it. And that's pretty phenomenal. He's while he has been typecasted, kind of. Sure, sure. Kind of. He, he he doesn't have that persona of someone that ha that has to be lived up to and that has to be, um, you know, ego stroked every time you see him. I am so glad you used the word typecast for Jason Statham because that is something that you you just you just hit a nerve in my brain because that's something we haven't talked about yet. Jason Statham has yes very much been by the definition of the word typecast, but. There is some weird thing, some weird medium, uh, literally, I'm talking medium as in between small and large, not medium as clairvoyant or anything, that Jason Statham is allowed to play these roles of, like like we talked in the Crank episode, hitman, assassin, killer, whatever, but he's allowed to do them in his own way or his way. I think of, you know, the fact of other people that have got typecast, like a... um. A Bruce Willis, for example. After Die Hard, everybody was like, Bruce Willis, you're a cop that doesn't play by the rules, and you gotta save the good guy. And it's like, okay, that's all I can do, you know? Kyle MacLachlan 
was typecast after Twin Peaks, where Twin Peaks, he was like, you're the FBI agent that does his job well and plays by the rules, that type of thing, you know? <laughs> Jason Statham, they're just like, you're typecast as a hitman, but you do you, because you can clearly make this better than whatever the fuck we thought about, you know? Well, Jason and Statham that's... is this grand typecasting. You know, he, Jason Statham right. might have perfected typecasting. It, I, it's, may I it's go almost so like... far? meta typecasting right yeah or, or or maybe it's maybe it's actually um the opposite of meta not over but under it's like there's this underlying structure to the character we want you to play but then it, there's also the parts of it that you just get to add and that's so maybe that's what not it is, only is that, that he gets well i think you actually said it right that he gets to add that directors will let him add type of thing Right. Where most people who get typecast, they say, hey, I wrote this role with you in mind type of thing, and you got to play right. it to what I thought, you know? We're j- like, th- there's actually a really great distinction, which I have never thought about until now, which you're, I think you and I are unlocking, Ben, is the fact that, like, Jason Statham, they're like, we have this idea. Can you help us with this character? Where most people who get typecast, they go, we want you. We wrote it for you, you know? The right. the example of um, conte- the contemporary example I think of is um, Aaron Paul. After he did Jesse in Breaking Bad, everybody was like, okay, you're going to be this goofy goddamn goober drug addict, and you're going to say bitch 17 times a second, okay? That's your job, okay? Right, nobody bitch. asked. Nobody asked Aaron Paul to do or add his stuff oh. to a movie. But I yeah, can imagine when they get it. when they get fucking Jason Statham, they're going to go, hey, what do you think about this role? Do you want to add to this role? That's a whole different layer of acting that I think, once again, to make this comparison, like I did in the Machenix episode, Jason Statham is another Nicolas Cage. Nobody can control Nicolas Cage. If you bring Nicolas Cage into a movie, you can't tell him X, Y, or Z. He's going to do whatever the fuck he wants because he's fucking Nicolas Cage and he knows what he wants to do. Jason Statham might be the same thing, but more conservative in, in the sense of movie roles, you know, not politi- right. po- po- politics, <laughs> you know. I'm not uh, saying that Jason Statham's, you know, against Roe v. Wade or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I definitely uh, I think there's something to that that Jason Statham when he is uh, allowed to, which, which I think should be always, he can bring something to the table that, that maybe they didn't expect. And he should be allowed uh, to because of the stunt work as well, as we talked about in the crank and mechanics episode. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause well, and that's, that's something else that he can bring. He can help them with their choreo- stunt choreography and make it look, you know, make sure that it's in his wheelhouse, but also something that he can make look phenomenal. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Statham is he while he's not like an A-list performance. I mean, and and in, in this movie, I would say maybe he is. Whereas in in like Crank, we don't, we're not getting an A-list performance there. It's it's very much a good enough, if not a little better than good enough performance. Yeah, yeah. And it's mixed with um, the kind of skill and talent that you want to let breathe. Absolutely, and that and that's why I think you know because. Whether or not wet next week we do Operation Force and Rouge de Guerre, spoiler alert, it's never going to happen. That might come out a year from now. <laughs> Who the fuck knows? Um, if When we do one more Jason Satham, I think I'm going to push hard for it being Revolver, the other Guy Ritchie movie. 
um, because I think Jason Statham literally is is that's his best performance. That's he's acting to the nines, you know. Um, okay, and so I, I I cannot wait I, to talk about that. I mean, I've only seen Revolver once. I know and it, and it wasn't was with, your. Yeah, it was with me, and I remember at the end of it, you were like, "I don't get it," and I was like, "Ben, I don't fully get it either, but it's great." And I think I get it now, so you know, <laughs> let, let, let's go. Yeah, so that. we should we should do that. We should uh, we make should, that the point. We should right on, right on. So, well, of course, like I said, we'll have some more Statham talk as we uh, go through this episode. Uh, were there any other big Statham thoughts you had about um, him, his performance, or anything like that um, before we get into the, like the nitty gritty detail of this movie? What does he know about diamonds? Nothing, because he's a boxing promoter. <laughs> That's right. But you know what I think he knows about What's the that? Germans. <laughs> the Germans. <laughs> he says before that Germans, what, two or now. three times in the movie. Yeah, it's at Protection least protection from what the Germans, Tommy. The Germans. <laughs> Uh, that's yeah, well, that's where I'm like Jason Statham. You're good. You're good at what you do. You're funny. <laughs> well, and then like they're outside when they're outside Boris's house. He's just like, quick before these Germans come. <laughs> yes, like, I love that yeah. repetition. And you're absolutely right, bringing up that repetition because that is going to come into play when we talk about Guy Ritchie. And I guess that's the next place to go, Ben. This is the first main feed Guy Ritchie movie we're discussing. You and I have discussed a Guy Ritchie movie before. It was Wrath of Man, the most recent Guy Ritchie movie, because Operation Fortune has not come out, and I cannot express how angry I am about the fact that we don't get to fucking see it, that type of thing. But, so, I guess let's start there. Maybe let's combine the two. Was Snatch your first introduction to Guy Ritchie? And how long ago did you see Snatch? Snatch was my first introduction to Guy okay. Ritchie. I right I think I'm I'm almost certain. And I, I saw I it. I cannot my... imagine that you saw like swept away first. You know. No, I um, I, I, almost I know certain. you didn't see Revolver first. The only other option would have been like late in like later than me in high school, you saw Rock and Rolla before this movie. No, I definitely saw Rock and Rolla after Snatch. Okay, okay, okay. Um, <clears throat> so I, I first saw this movie when a coworker uh, of mine, when I worked at Walmart uh, as a, um, a receiving associate, so unloading freight trucks, when I worked at Walmart doing that, uh, one of my coworkers was like, have you seen Snatch? And I was like, I... I guess not, because I don't know what you're talking about. And Ben said, Harry or not. <laughs> <laughs> what year is this? We are um, Chris, this episode. Please continue. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, you know, that was uh, that would have been either my junior or senior year of high school. Uh, I expect my junior year when I when I first saw Snap. I know it's actually probably the summer between them. The summer between junior and senior year that I first saw Snatch. Okay, okay. And I know I know you said earlier in our crank uh, crunk discussion that you saw this before Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. That's right. I watched Lock, right Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels because of this movie. Yes, yes. As did I. As did I. Yeah. As did uh, probably most people. <laughs> right. So so I watched um I watched Snatch. I really enjoyed it. Uh then it then it, I became aware of Lock, Stock. I watched it, enjoyed it. I've watched Snatch probably uh, probably six or seven ti- more times since then. So you're talking maybe about like a l- lifetime right here? Yeah, so okay. so pro- okay. probably, well, maybe it's six or seven lifetime uh, watches. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I didn't watch it again for almost ten years, probably. But like we said earlier, it stuck with you immensely, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and there was some part of me 
that was nervous watching it again because I was like, what if it doesn't hold up? Ooh, that's it's good, Ben. Ben, you're you're coming in with the hot cinema out of these takes. There we go. You were nervous. Okay. Now I'm on the edge of my seat. Now the cinema audience is on the edge of our seat. Here we go. Uh, yeah. So so I I come into this movie and I and you know like I said I, I'm I'm nervous. Uh, but pretty much right out the gate, you know, we get his little his little monologue intro. Uh, he, we get to what do I know about diamonds, and I'm like, yeah, this is this is pretty good. I was good. trying to think of a comparison to when this has happened on the main feed before, and the thing that came to mind was the Henry Selleck series, where we oh. had all seen these goddamn movies like James and Giant Peach, Nightmare Before Christmas, like all these when we were kids, and we loved them. And I was the only one who was like, no, there's a real meaning to these movies, and you, Ben, I will never forget when we didn't even have to record it that weekend you were like nightmare for christmas fucking sucks you know <laughs> and i was like god damn it ben don't talk to me about that you know <laughs> but you you loved it you liked it loved it oh, liked it yeah yeah, yeah. So, give, so give all the expletives you can yeah i i think that um one line in particular and you know it, it was it was already Growing on me before this, because this movie, this happens like maybe 20 minutes in when um, Gorgeous George is boxing Mickey, oh, um, yes. is, is fighting Mickey and, and Mickey knocks him out. And he and so Gorgeous George is on the ground and they're like, he might die. And if he dies, Tommy's dead, too. And Jason Statham narrates, Tommy, the tit is praying. And if he isn't, he, he fucking should fucking be. should be. Yes, absolutely. And okay. I was like, that's my kind of line. That's my kind of delivery. Like I fucking I'm in like I'm in for this movie for the rest of the movie. Like I'm I'm here. OK, um, I, I would like to uh, interject. Well, I want to get more of your thoughts on the movie, more of this history. I think you might have given your history completely. You know, if there's anything, um, you know, what parts of this movie I like all of them. The movie parts. <laughs> <laughs> the, the parts where the screen's moving and there's audio coming out. Of, this of fucking snatch by Guy Ritchie. And I know this is this is something that I don't I don't know if it's something that like our cinema audience will latch onto, our Patreon audience will latch onto, or my followers on Letterboxd will latch onto. This is just kind of weird for me. I kind of sat down, not kind of, I did. I sat down to watch this movie for this recording two nights ago, and I was like, yeah, I know I liked this movie when I was younger. I know I liked the uh, the ideas of this movie. I know I liked the storytelling of this movie. And I started to come at it with this, like, Rob perspective. And Ben knows what I mean with this Rob perspective of, like, I'm going to be able to get on Ben and I's discussion with, like, a big hot take about, like, what does this movie mean? Like, what do the characters represent? You know, I was like, this is going to be, it's such a beautiful day all over again that this is a, this is going to be crank all over again that they're taking the piss, taking the piss out of your schools on Call of Duty, you know, for like this meaning, dude, I have nothing of that. I have, I have no take on this movie. You know what my take on this movie is? It's fucking great. It's a fucking great example of how to tell a story. It's a fucking great example of character collision. I gave this movie five out of fucking five stars, and that is hard for me to do when I have no take on it. I don't think this movie means anything. I think this movie is just basically the urtext of how to tell a good story. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I actually pretty well agree with you in that it's it's very much a story about about characters colliding 
Yeah, um, yeah. and that, that, and that's what what it's called. I, I I don't want you to think, Ben. Sorry to inter- interject. Um, I don't want you to think that I came up with that. Character okay, yeah. collision is like a genre type of okay. thing at this point. Um, it is initiated, not created, but initiated in the lexicon by like Tarantino from ninety two to ninety four with okay. Reservoir Dogs and um, Pulp Fiction. But I think, as much as I love Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. I think this is the pinnacle of what character collision can be. Absolutely. And and to that to that point it's actually got some similarities with Nice Guys where it's um like coincidence based at some points. Well, yes, you're right, but I think Nice Guys is coincidence to the nines type of thing. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm with you. So coinc- this is like a coincidences uh, come down. as a feature in Nice Guys. Coincidences co- coincidences come as a necessity in Snatch. Right. So, oh yeah. So th- this is definitely a very good like character. I I love that term. I hadn't heard it before. Character collision right on, uh, right story. On, right on. And I I agree with you that it, that it's not saying too much. It's not really teaching you a lesson about how to be. It's it's more of a of a spectacle than a what psalm a lesson. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. and that, that's where I, I get why you're so maybe not confused. I'm using confused because just of what your tone of voice was, but I get why you're so like searching for the next word because it's not something that both of us usually feel. I mean, you know, usually when you and I talk about anything on Cinemodities, Patreon or otherwise, one of us has the big hot take of what this movie has to mean, you know? Right. The, the, this God, God, now I'm stumbling on my own words. There's no hot take to this movie. My hot take to this movie is it's a good way to tell a fucking story. You know? Like, I don't I this is the exemplar of when I think you don't need to have a message. You don't always need to change your audience's life. And this is the thing that, you know, is in great, great comparison to when you and I talk about, like, Anomalisa. Uh, it's such a beautiful day. Even Crank. I was trying to put a great message on Crank about the action cinema genre, you know? Mm-hmm. This movie is just a great way to tell a story, and it's a great story. And, hey, ain't that all you fucking need? A good tale and a good way to tell that tale. Well, ain't that gonna get you through the day? At the end of the day, ain't that As, what our fucking ancestors did throughout the campfire, 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 you know? Uh, as somebody who is oriented, uh, absolutely, that's that's what I want is a good story. Um, in terms of the delivery or like how the story is told, I, I, I do have to say there's, there's something very interesting about Jason Statham narrating very much so what what he feels like is his own demise. Yes. Um, yes. And then. And then it just turning around and, and you know, Mickey the Pikey saves the day. I, I uh, think the, the best exemplar of what you just said is why I love this movie so much is that Jason Statham is narrating the fact that he's like, well, we're fucked. We got to get out of the country. We got to do whatever we can to escape Ricktop. So I'm going to go back to the office and find my safe behind the painting. And he lifts up the painting and he goes, something's not right about this. Goes to make some tea, drops the sugar, and it's like everybody's there behind him. And he goes, fuck, you know, that type of thing. (laughs) There's something so beautiful. And, you know, maybe the cinema audience and um, my letterbox viewers who are the cinema audience as well, they might not agree with me with. I think that 
just a pure story, even if you have no grander scale thing to say, the way you tell a story can make that story better than anything else that's ever been told. And I know we talked about this in Wrath of Man, Ben. I, I think very specifically, you and I in the Wrath of Man on Patreon talked about the fact of, like, does the way a story is told or, or uh, how a story is told, does that influence how important that story is? And we agreed. We said yes. I think that even if a story has no meaning, the way it's told can give it something just innumerably creative, can give it legacy that does not, cannot be encompassed by anything else. And I think Snatch accomplishes that. Well, so here's, like, with stories, the the thing is that historically humans use stories to teach. Yes. Like, that's one of the the main things that stories did, whereas now stories have become, well, and, and that's not even entirely true because there's this whole other section where it's like humans back then had a lot of time that they couldn't be productive because they didn't they hadn't mastered electricity. Yeah. So like when the sun went down, it was damn near like you better be sitting around the fire. Uh yep. <laughs> and you better not be too far from home, etc. So there was a lot of time to for stories that taught you things, but there was also a lot of time for stories that were just damn good stories, damn good entertaining stories. And so th- this really might be by we really might be touching on onto like the second kind of story that was incredibly important in the history Ooh, of humanity. I like but, that take. Okay. Which is the kind that is captivating, the kind that makes time pass, um, more be- or less be- a time machine. Are you are you saying in some sense, uh, time machine is a great perspective, and I want you to expand on that, but are you also saying, you know, I think something we talked about with the editing of Guy Ritchie before is that the um, the visual nature of how we intake stories has now created a new avenue that we have never experienced in our whole species. Well, yeah, of course that's true, but but I, I was just talking about it from the perspective of, of you know what stories are to people. Okay. But okay. now, now from the entertainment perspective and from the time machine perspective, obviously, uh, cinema or or the screen makes that something that we yeah. can achieve in a way. I, I would say to a level beyond what we could achieve before it. And so, and what I mean by time machine. Uh, I think I think of a time machine as something that moves you through time without you experiencing that time. Sure, sure. Um, and so I I think that we have we have everybody had well I fucking I hope everybody has I'm about to make this a little sadder than it needs to be. Uh, everybody has one time machine in their house and that's their bed. You lay down in bed, you wake up eight hours yeah, later, yeah. and time has passed without you experiencing it. I thought you were going to say everybody has a time machine accessible to them. It's watching everything everywhere all at once. <laughs> uh, two and a half hours will go by like ten minutes, okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that that too. If you can afford everything everywhere all at once, you should buy it and watch it. But no, so I like I think that there's something incredibly important historically to, to the story that is just for entertainment's sake. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially come the time of the night where it's like maybe i'm too tired to learn lessons uh but i'm not quite tired enough to sleep yet and now it's time to to fucking get entertained until i fall asleep you know that kind of shit so i i I don't know like historically i i know that the the use of stories as ways to teach people lessons and 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 things that people learn from um and and why that makes stories so captivating is well well studied i i don't know um if there's any study on the entertainment aspect. Okay. And I and I, I feel like maybe we could be touching on to something that, that is has been overlooked, which is that there was also a great need for time to pass. Um until gotcha. the sun came back up. 
the like prehistoric important or, or you know the the early man importance of, of a story that could entertain you oh yes and, okay and tied tied you yeah. over to okay. to uh, sunrise uh, or until you sleep because yeah, you know yeah. that that's the main thing so I, it occurred to me you know it's like I remember when I was younger there there was always like this kind of group of like pseudo intellectual people who who would just be like oh you like that like mindless entertainment drivel and um, I I think that it's it, this is just another one of those situations where it's like, okay, it you can criticize liking mindless drivel, um, but if but if you look back on it and like if this importance does exist in our in our past in our history, it's like this is just another situation where where your disdain for what people like is just short sighted nonsense. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's just a way for you to feel superior when when in reality it's like okay, well maybe you like this stuff that is um, more heady because you're not you're not busy living your life enough. Aren't you know. we also talking about the uh, the importance as an impact type of thing? You know, it's like maybe we don't always need an Anomalisa or an It's Such a Beautiful Day to impact us. Maybe sometimes a good story and a good story being told in a good way is just as impactful. I think that was something that really hit me with this viewing of Snatch where – you know, I usually come in with these thoughts of like, oh, Ben, I have a big take. Like even I tried to do in the crank episode. I was like, is this a satire type of thing? And and you were like, Rob, shut up. This is just a goofy, fun action movie. Stop it. You know, this right. is a this is a goofy, fun action movie. And I, I will stop it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I, I, I guess what I was getting at is that this value to humanity is probably something that's long lived. It's probably something that has, has been yeah. around and been important sure. to us um, since, since our you know ancestors were sitting around campfires without electricity. Yeah. The, the way, and I know you said it, which I might have mentioned earlier, but the way you said it in our Wrath of Man episode is, um, I think, very apt, is that, you know, a story is a story, but the way you tell that story is everything. The way that you encounter and, and wrap that and ensconce that audience into your story is what makes it meaningful for sure right right you have to if if you're just telling a story that isn't also immoral and i mean probably even if you're telling a story that is immoral because you know you need people to listen till the end oh it's like yeah, you have I mean, you have this to make whole them movie feel, is call of duty of course <laughs> you have to make them feel like they're part of that world enough to stay with you absolutely yeah and that's that's what being you, you know compelled by a story is it's like i'm 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 part of this now i'm part of this exactly. and i need to see it, it wraps you up it makes you feel like a a person in that universe makes you feel like an observer if if nothing else of course i mean some right. great well, movies make you feel more than an observer um but right. th this is this is just one of those examples where i just to reiterate I have no big take on this movie, Ben. I don't think it's about X, Y, or Z. I think this is just a great story told by a great storyteller. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and I I agree to that point. Like there, this this movie is like chock full of good scenes as well, well. Okay, I'm glad you say that because I think that's where to, the next natural extension is because I'm somebody who usually likes to come in with these hot takes, and I know I did in the Crank episode, you know? <laughs> and I didn't do it in the Mechanics episode because that fucking color-coded map of the world's arm dealer's market share just changed my worldview, okay? I get that, you know? But in you remember, in, in the Crank discussion, I was like, is this satire? You know, I was like, is this saying something? Let's get into the fact of this movie 
not saying anything, just being a good story. I know I kind of cut you off with this, Ben, but I had to because we should say this movie has one of the best performances of any actor ever in a movie, I would say. And that's a big statement for me, you know? I've seen a lot of movies that are from before my time, from before Ben's time. A lot of movies that if I said, hey, Ben, check this out, he'd go, why the fuck you want me to see something old? I'm sorry, actually, Ben would say, at least our schools aren't Call of Duty, you know, that type of thing. Let me just highlight Alan Ford as Bricktop. Is this not one of the best performances ever in a movie, period? (laughs) It's a very solid performance. Do Uh, you know what nemesis means? Okay, since clearly you had some reservations, what what are your concerns with Bricktop? Bricktop? He just reminds me of Austin Powers too much. (laughs) Oh, see, that's... (laughs) You're not wrong, but you are wrong, but you're right at the same time. Bricktop is is fantastic, and I actually am, uh, as I was watching this movie, I was um, kind of relishing, not relishing, relinquishing the fact that um, it's going to take us like three more years of Adventure Time to be introduced to a Mr. Pig, which we think is a Bricktop reference. Remember the whole fact that Mr. Pig, when he meets Tree Trunks, is like, I used to eat people for a gangster, and we're like, Bricktop, 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 you know, yeah. <laughs> that type of yeah. thing. No, Alan Ford is so good in this movie as Bricktop. Um, I think he's my MVP. Uh, w- would you have another like standout performance to uh, to throw into this mix? Yeah, I think Brad Pitt's performance as Mickey is fucking dope. Okay, right on. Mickey the Pikey, who barely speaks English. I, I mean... My only reason of not giving Brad Pitt the best supporting actor, you know, winner or nominee of 2000 is that... I think he is propped up too much by Guy Ritchie's visual filmmaking. And what I mean by that is I think that he's doing a good job, but I think that he's supported by the script and the visual filmmaking. The scene I want to highlight is the um, the bout that he has, the first bout we see with him of, what, han- handsome George? Gorgeous George. Gorgeous George. I was going to say curious George, and that sounded too on the nose, you know. But, you know, in the fight with um, Gorgeous George where, like, he gets knocked around for the first few seconds and then he falls back and knocks down a pallet and he starts stretching his legs and then the other pikeys, like, lift up the pallet to bring him into frame. I'm like, that is glorious filmmaking right there. Oh, absolutely. I think that more of Brad Pitt's performance in this movie is bolstered by Guy Ritchie rather than Brad Pitt giving... Like, I can't give Brad Pitt a a check mark for just doing a crazy accent, you know? I think a lot of it is the visuals that Guy Ritchie is providing him with. But, dude, I mean. his facial expressions when he's in the boxing ring after he knocks out the first guy well, when he's supposed to throw the fight. Okay, here's my question. This is his immediate follow-up to Fight Club. Was he not doing the same things he was doing in Fight Club? I don't recall a scene in Fight Club where he's just like, chuckling at the fact that he knocked out this guy in one hit i can recall an exact scene oh is, is that is, I, in fight club <laughs> yeah. okay well maybe it is i don't know i i haven't seen fight club okay. in fair. uh fair. probably longer than it's been since i've seen this while we're on this topic i had this thought during watching this movie uh, i was like is this brad pitt's immediate follow-up to fight club no it's not there's one movie between ben 
Could you guess what movie Brad Pitt has a cameo in, a very brief two-second cameo in that is between Fight Club and this movie? And I'll give you this extra hint. It was covered on our Patreon and involved puppets. Oh, the John Malkovich. Yeah, being John Malkovich. Being he's John in Malkovich. that he's in that for literally two seconds. Okay. That is the only credit he has between Fight Club and this movie. <laughs> nice. I agree with you. Brad Pitt is fantastic in this movie, but I think he's a better dialogue performer than a physical performer in this movie. Because his physical performance just relies on him being like, you know, slapped across the fla- uh, the face like and while like a song plays type of thing. Sure. I mean, a lot of his performance is in his boxing, but like there's even the scene where, you know, his mom's camper is burning down oh, and well, his oh, and his oh. friends are holding him back. Well, that that's one of the best scenes in the movie. That I I cannot so, disagree with you. That is a fantastic moment. He is showing once again, I think that is a a micro expression scene that is moved into macro expressions because of the camera work for sure well some because the camera work but there also are macro expressions present and in the way that he's like flailing his arms while he's like trying to go run to the camper and stuff oh oh, sure i'm when i say macro micro expression i'm talking about the face the hands can do whatever they want absolutely so like he's giving he's giving a macro and a micro performance at the same time which is what should always be absolutely probably I, I actually am so glad you bring up that scene because I think that scene is not only a um, stratospheric performance from Brad Pitt, also a um, stratospheric uh, performance from Guy Ritchie, but I think that is where the cinematography of this movie lies, is the fact that when we get that scene, you have no shortage of cutting back and forth from Brad Pitt's perspective of just full-on burning caravan, cut back to people holding him back, back of the head, like third person versus first person. Like, they go back and forth. And I think that's what I was saying about, well, I have no hot take about what this movie means. This is just the best way to tell a fucking story. Is that Mm -hmm. they're giving you every level of depth that you need, and they're making sure you don't forget what depth you're at as the viewer. That's an interesting way to think about it. Um, I, I think I am picking up what you're putting down. That is a, a very fine scene to highlight that the the fact that it, we jump back and forth between the different perspectives mm-hmm. um, that allow us to feel what Brad Pitt's feeling, uh, but then also to see it from the outside and look at it as like, oh, shit, that dude's mom just got murdered. It's this like double down of the fact that, you know, the audience is not only just viewing this from the third person from the outside, but they should also be the characters that type of thing i think something very similar in a much more goofy way is one of my favorite scenes in the movie is um when cousin avi is talking to uh freddie fourfingers benicio del toro frankie fourfingers i'm sorry frankie fourfingers i'm I'm thinking of freddie got fingered you know (laughs) but the fact when they're talking on the phone every time it cut it this is like in the first 15 minutes of the movie Every time it cuts back to Benicio Del Toro at the Taylors, he's in a different fucking outfit. Yeah, that was phenomenal. And it cuts like like four times in like three minutes or something like that. No, it, it's it's fast. It's like 15 seconds between outfit changes. And, and, and that's the thing where I'm like, like literally I'm watching this for, like we said earlier, the first time in what, 15, 20 years. And I'm like, 
This is amazing. This is not only utilizing the tactics of storytelling that have been deployed by, you know, most directors, like a la a Quentin Tarantino, a la a um, Sam Mendes, even, to, you know, relate back to uh, American Beauty. I'm sorry to bring that back, Ben. But they're using it to the extent that it's making it absurd, you know? Like, there's no way Benicio Del Toro could get into that many outfits that fast. It's like... It's a Coen Brothers thing. It's a, it's a goofball Looney Tunes thing at the end of the day. And that's fantastic. Definitely. That's actually one of those things, you know, we mentioned earlier. It's like this, this quote didn't stick with me, but I did remember it being in the movie. This is actually something I did not remember being in the movie. Okay, okay. Uh, like whenever I, whenever I got to see this scene the first time, it was like I was seeing it for the first time. And so I was like, what the fuck? This is so great. <laughs> um, and and then later, of course, we see him in his van and he has all of those outfits hanging in his van. Yes, that's the that best was, part. <laughs> yeah, that that's was great. The character collision aspect of this movie where, um, you know, when we think it just might be like a goofy gooferson type of thing, it really is, you know, no, this is reality. You know, this is there's a blending between tunes and reality that this movie takes place in that makes it all the better for storytelling, I would say. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's it's one of those things. I, I had a friend say this to me once, and it has stuck with me. Uh, I never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Exactly. And you and said that this to me is before, exactly... and I've heard that before, and that you are 100% right. Absolutely. And, yeah, so this is one of those moments where it's like, obviously, this isn't the truth, but it's a good story. And I think that is also, you know, not only is it not the truth, but it's somewhat backed up by the fact that, you know, Cousin Avi, Dennis Farina, coming to London, you know, his whole thing is like, you know, Doug, fuck you and fuck your Sandy Beaches. We're going to find my friend. And, you know, it's like, no, he just wants this 84 carat diamond, you know? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, he's there for the diamond. Okay. So I know we have more to talk about this movie. There's a huge subplot we have not talked about this movie. Um, But I figured it would be now better than any other time to get into the critical reception of this movie. And I think there are two steps to this. The first is that this is produced by Matthew Vaughn. So Matthew Vaughn, a longtime friend of Guy Ritchie, they've been together forever. Matthew Vaughn actually has produced uh, most of his original uh, early career movies. Matthew Vaughn has uh, gone on to be a director in his own right. Um, He directed Layer Cake. Ben, have you seen Layer Cake? I have not. Okay, that might be something we have to cover on the Patreon. You know, shout out Patreon, that type of thing. I actually own that movie on DVD because I was able to buy it for 29 cents. So we should actually check that out. But he has also directed Kick-Ass, X-Men First Class, and all of the Kingsman movies. Oh, okay. Yes, that is that Matthew Vaughn. So, um... I will leave it there. I think when Ben and I eventually get to uh, either Kick-Ass or the Kingsman movies, I don't know which one will come first. Those are both very um, cinemodities proper prospects. But um, he's who produced this movie. This movie cost $10 million. Oh, wow. So Guy Ritchie pulls this off with a $10 million sleek budget. That's American dollars, you know? I don't and they do... had to burn a caravan. They had to burn a caravan. They had to get Brad Pitt right after Fight Club, you know, that type of thing. Um, they probably had to pay Jason Statham in tea or whatever the fuck, you know. They probably had to save a school from Call of Duty. Who knows? Guess what, Ben? Makes $84 million at the box Shit. office. 
Talk oh about God. a profit and a half, bro. <laughs> wow. The reason that I say that um, Snatch made way more than double, and as Ben and I have talked about, the fact is that, you know, if you want to make money in Hollywood, um, your movie should make at least double its production budget. Now, this is the thing that really bothers me, Ben, and I want to preface this by saying it really bothers me. This criticism is what bothers me. The comparison is not what bothers me. So let me let me lay my cards out. Let me lay, let me land. Let me land. The biggest criticism of this movie upon its release was that it shared many similarities in the plot, characters, settings, themes, and styles to Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. I am not kidding you, Ben. Most people in America, in America is what I'm talking about, Roger Ebert included, included, said, well, it's a good movie, but Guy Ritchie just kind of made the same movie twice. Before I go off on my rant, and I've already spoiled for you how much I distaste, uh, distaste this idea, what do you think about that? What do you think about the notion of people going, this is a good movie, but it's too similar to his first movie? What do you think about there- that? There are a lot of similarities between these two movies. Oh, sure. No, nobody's denying that. No, I, I'm not even denying that, you know? That's why even before we started this recording, I said, Ben, hey, we should do Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels on the Patreon to answer these questions, you know? <laughs> if I remember right, and this is something maybe I made up when I was younger, I, I remember thinking that the diamond in this movie was worth $500,000. Oh, they give, yeah, they give no value to it. Okay, at all. yeah, so... Yeah. Uh, for some reason, like that was something that I, I guess, just made up. But in you know, in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, it's, it's two guns instead of one diamond. Yeah, yeah. There are also a lot of differences between these movies. I actually, I, I'm glad you say that, and maybe that is something we share or save for our Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels movie. I really want to harpen in on the fact that what do you think about the criticism of going? This director already made this movie. And that's why this movie is lesser. Because um, that seems to be the criticism that I found is going, hey, th- like, Snatch is kind of good, but Guy Ritchie did it already. Pishaw. Uh, I mean, if it was actually a carbon copy, I would say that that, that is a valid criticism. I'm so glad you say that because I think, I, I don't want to speak for you, Ben, it is not a carbon copy, right? No, it's not. Not in the fucking slightest. No, there there are plenty of differences between these movies. Uh, they do have similarities, but there are plenty of differences. Oh, they have they have plenty of similarities. They have plenty of similarities in like thematic notions. Things we'll get to, but I am so upset by this fact that I I think that you know this is going to be my weird Rob racism angle. You know, Guy Ritchie's a white man, a British white man. I'm a white man, not British. My schools might be Call of Duty, but we're different. You know, that type of thing. I am so upset. I was so upset, and still am, to read the fact that, like, when Snatch came out, most, like, confirmed professional critics were like, this is a good movie. This movie's really good. This movie has a lot going for it. But you know the problem with it is? It's too similar to the movie he released two years ago. And I'm like, are you out of your fucking mind? 
Like, what kind of criticism is that? Before I go even further into my problems with that criticism, what do you think about that, Ben, as a base level? Like, saying, like, somebody's second movie is too similar to their first, so we have to disregard their ne- this new movie. Um, I mean, as I said, if it was if it was a carbon copy, it would be a valid criticism. Yeah, and... I, I'm glad you said that again, and I'm going to harp on that. But, like, just to, since you've seen it, just maybe not even seen it. I mean, I don't even know. I'm so confused by this criticism. I don't know how to appropriately word it to you, Ben. You know. Well, I mean, I, I guess the the stance I have is that every movie should be criticized as if it's as if movies by the but the by that person don't exist as, as its I, own merits, as its own yeah. merits. Absolutely, you know. Yeah. I, maybe maybe before, and this will be a good preface into what I want to talk about is the fact of um what we talked about with Spun versus Requiem for a Dream, what we um briefly mentioned in that episode of um White House Down versus Olympus Has Fallen. Do we solely give absolute one hundred percent credit to the movie that came first? Absolutely not, right? Well, I mean, yeah, the John Wick movies are another place where this is something that happens. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's a great example, Ben. Should you and I just absolutely just discard our love for nobody because John Wick came out a year earlier? Should we do that? No. No, absolutely not. And I'm fucking bothered fundamentally by this critique. You want to hear a great example? Sam Raimi. Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 are the same fucking movie, okay? Nobody gave him shit for the fact about this. Okay, some more examples. Tim Burton's Frankenweenie and Frankenweenie, they're the same fucking movie. Okay, let me even go further. Karen Maine with Yes, God, Yes, about the um the girl coming into her own, like the girl learning about masturbation at a summer camp. They're the same fucking movie. I don't know. I I do not understand why. And Ben, you can clearly tell the anger I'm getting about this. The fact that so many directors, they have an idea. So many up-and-coming filmmakers, they have this great idea for a story, for a tale, and they make it with barely any money. But it does so well that another studio gives them money to make it the way they wanted to. And that's all the examples I cited. Okay. Nobody ever fucking yells at them except for fucking Guy Ritchie. Like, everybody's complaint is, okay, yeah, Snatch is good, but it's too similar to Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels cost $1.5 million. It was a hit. It was a slam fucking dunk in Britain only. That movie did not come out in America. That movie does so well... They give him $10 million, Guy Ritchie, him, $10 million to make Snatch. Not only does Snatch hit in Britain, it hits in the U.S. It makes $87 million. It breaks the bank. And critics are going, yeah, it's good, but it's what he made before. What the fuck is this criticism out of nowhere for the sheer audacity, sarcastic, for an an auteur to finalize his vision. This is the stupidest thing to me, Ben. Please, Ben, save me from my rabbit hole. I hate this criticism. I despise this criticism. All the examples you gave, I think, really sell the point um, enough. It's There There are decent reasons to to re, not remake necessarily. In this case, he, he made a different movie, but but, but maybe master uh, an idea and make it the you know the true thing that you wanted it to be. I'm so glad you uh, said that. It's not remake. It's reimagine. Isn't that 
better. Isn't yeah. that better? Is that when you make a scrappy $1.5 million project, Lock, Stock, and Spoof, Two Smoking Barrels, and people love it, and they finally give you a paycheck, and you go, okay, I'm going to make the movie I really wanted to make. Why the hell is it well-received when it's the better adaptation of your student film than when it's a new thing that does everything you did better? What the fuck? Yeah, that, that's a that's a weird question. So it's like it, it sounds like they might have been happy if he had just remade Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, which would be dumb. There's no way to remake that that story. And that's the other thing that drives me crazy. Is like, yes, you're right. Maybe they would have loved it based on the empirical evidence I presented to you. Maybe they would re they would love it more if they re if he remade it. Why would we want that? Wouldn't we want just another great? fucking story from this creator with more money with more cast with brad pitt you know why is that worse than just going okay like shiva baby for example same actor same premise just moved up to a feature same thing with yes god yes same actor same premise moved it to a feature yeah they're better in both cases and they're well regarded as like steps up for this creator wouldn't you want them to go, okay, thank you. I love what I've shown you. Now let me make something better. There's something so just egregious that I think I disagree with critics that I hope I'm getting across in this discussion. But please, I'm sorry to cut you off again. <laughs> uh, it, it just seems like, I, I, I guess I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've seen something and been like, man, I wish that there was something else that was this, but a little different from the same people. Mm-hmm. Um. Because I just want more of this. Like, I just want to consume this more. I want it to be the first time I'm seeing this again. Dude, can I can I give you exactly what I think you didn't mention, but we would both agree with? Kiss Kiss Bang Bang versus The Nice Guys. Sure. Exactly. That is, I think that is exactly what we're talking about. Don't make the same thing. Make the same thing with the twists you've learned going through the industry to make it better. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, I the fact that I want to consume two things that are so similar to each other from the same person. It's like, that's just a testament to how good it is. I also want to, in this vein, ask you, um, since uh, we have both not seen Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels in so long, you said already there are similarities. Um, how many similarities do you remember? Uh, really, just like the the rifle subplot Okay, is really all I remember in terms of... Uh, and, like, I guess it was also British... Um, but like there were, <laughs> they they both there, did say "oi govna" in scenes. Yes, of course, you know. Like in Lockstock, I think they're like drug dealers, and they're dealing with uh somebody who what he runs a a porn or a a sex toy yeah, store. Yeah, there's like some smart shop, smart shop absolutism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so but just to since you haven't seen it in a while, I haven't seen it in a while. I d- I just only did this research, Ben. Um. Some of the complaints about, like, the comparisons between this movie, just to harp on this more because I think it is so fucking fundamentally stupid. You know the scene in Snatch with the twin daughters of, like, you know, Dad, yeah, you told us. Dad, yeah, you told us. And then they say in conjunction, Dad, yeah, you told us, you know? Apparently, two characters do that exact same thing in Lock, Sock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Critics were just like, you're fucking ripping yourself off you should go die like you should put a pistol to your head because you reused a joke uh what 
What about the Marvel universe? Oh, my God. Dude, that's a better example of the Marvel universe. I was going to say, dude, you and I have talked about Dennis Dugan directing Saving uh, Silverman on this podcast, which everybody should know. I bought Ben the Blu-ray of Saving Silverman, um, which next time I come out to Ohio, we will have to watch together and be very, very drunk and upset for. Why? Why? This is my question. Why can a director have something like kicked in the nuts, in quotes, as a director trademark, but Guy Ritchie reuses one joke twice, and American critics go, fuck you, you hack, you loser, you're out of ideas. I don't understand that. I do not understand that. It's pretty weird. It's really weird. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's such a, that's such a small thing, though. It's to nitpicky. Like... It's nitpicky. Yeah. It's, it's not even a director trademark. It's a moment in a scene to elevate yeah. the scene, right? Yeah, that's that's very weird. Like, whenever you want to, like, if you want to say these movies have too much in common, like them having one joke in common or or you know a specific joke in common, like I don't know, that doesn't feel like it's in the realm of these to- stories are too similar. Absolutely not, and I think that's why I brought up the comparisons I did, like with the um you know Shiva baby comparison, uh, you know, uh Emma Seligman, you know, like with the Karen Maine with Yes God Yes with Tim Burton with Frankenweenie. I mean, like, they're doing the same things. I think that this this Guy Ritchie comparison is so unwarranted because he's not doing the same things. He's taking them to a different level. And that brings me to the thing I, I wanted to get to you uh, in this episode about Guy Ritchie is that Guy Ritchie was the original Rube Goldberg machine of writing. We've talked about, Ben, before, the aspect of Arrested Development being a Rube Goldberg machine of comedy. Mm-hmm. Just for our audience, our cinema audience, if, if nobody understands what we're saying, is the fact that Arrested Development has gotten so much credibility as one of the best comedy shows of all time because it does a Rube Goldberg, Rube Goldberg, Goldberg machine level of setting up what needs to be funny. So they will spend multiple episodes setting up lines of dialogue from characters that seemingly have no meaning, but later on they start to be reused in a way that makes you find them funny. I Mm -hmm. think Guy Ritchie is doing the same thing with his repetition in this 90 to 100 minutes that Adam Horowitz is doing in Arrested Development. I think with the, I fucking hate Pikeys. I think with the repetition of like a character says x character says x later on character says x that type of thing i think there is a level of repetition both within and between scenes that guy ritchie is nailing before we really understood that as american audiences oh i mean i'm i'm reminded of of even like self-referential stand-up sure Sure. self-referential is a great way to put it i mean self-referential comedy is like the funniest kind of comedy there is. I mean, it's comedy with dogs without horses, right? Right. Yeah. We were <laughs> like dogs no without horses. no one will horses. get if they, unless they get that reference. <laughs> right. So, but like, that's, that's what it is. Like you create a situation where you can have an inside joke with everyone in the audience by making it self-referencing. Let's pick a, let's try and pick an example to, um, explain to our audience. Um, maybe, maybe this one I'm just seeing in my notes is, um, uh, Statham saying to Tommy, uh, Protection from what? The Germans. The Germans. And that comes up three more times, to- or two more times. Right. So, total and then, of three, yeah, later uh, he says. Yeah, you know. 
yeah, later he says, um, before the Germans get here. It's Rube Goldberg in the sense of you you don't start thinking it's funny, but when it happens, it hits you like a ton of bricks. Is that fair to say? Uh, I, I think I understand what you're saying. I mean, that's that's something with self-referential comedy in general is that whether it's funny or not the first time, like the setup is so that it's funny later. Yeah, um, yeah. And and I would definitely say the protection, like protection from what the Germans, like that that line in itself is not is not that funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like maybe it's like a little chuck worthy or whatever. Maybe uh, the better way to put it, I think that the biggest and strongest rule of threes comedy is um, cousin Avi taking the plane over over the pond, across the pond, as they say, and with it ending with um, customs. Do you have any anything to declare? Yeah. Never go to England, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Anything to declare? Yeah. Don't go to England. I, I laughed heartily at that line, Ben, I well, have to say. <laughs> the, yeah, that line's great. I, I like the uh, the pre-flight routine that we see. Oh, yeah. Yep. With the, Cousin Abby. Like the pill swallowing, that type of stuff. Yeah, the, yeah. like he, he, he swallows a pill with a shot of liquor. And that, and and, that, just, that just goes to the... The editing, the visual editing and filmmaking of this movie, right? Well, sure, but it's also used multiple times. So, like, you're right, you're right. Not only is it editing and visual style, but it's the the notion of Guy Ritchie to use it to that effect. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So we get we get that kind of self reference again, where Absolutely. it's like, oh, okay, he's he's flying. And one of the times, I don't think that they specifically tell us, like. Shit gets side shit goes sideways and then they show us that routine and then he's back in America. And it's like Dude, oh, okay. okay. When when you say shit goes sideways, are you talking about the time he shoots Bullet Tooth Tony in the yeah. back of the Oh my god. Yeah. Tony? I cannot believe dude, we've been recording for like two hours and I'm still like, Oh my god, we've gotten every we have gotten nearly none of the moments of this movie out of the way. So let me, with that being said We've talked about the grand scheme of these things. We talk about Statham. We talk about our love of this movie. I love this movie. I have no take on this movie. I don't think it means anything. The meaning of this movie is good storytelling. Ben, the floor is fucking yours. I should have been giving you this floor an hour ago. Uh, so, actually, the scene leading up to Tony getting shot in the back of that store. Uh, what's his name? Not Saul, but the uh, the other thinner oh, Vinny. Uh, guy Vinny. in their squad. Yeah, Vinny. Yeah. He, because uh, it's it's yeah, Solvini and Tyrone. Oh my god! Says there, says that the dog ate the diamond. Vinny, and, uh, Saul, and Tyrone are my new three stooges. I <laughs> love their comedy in this movie. <laughs> sure. Um, so, I back, so they when they back up into the truck, it was at a funny angle, and the <laughs> wide cut of them all looking back to a truck right in it's their fucking you, face. It's behind you, Tyrone. It's behind you, Tyrone. Dude, I have not laughed so hard in a long time. <laughs> when you're in reverse, things come from behind you, Tyrone. He's a getaway driver? What can he get away from? There's also the whole, like, he's a natural, aren't you, Tyrone? Of course I am. Like, that bit. Like, of course he is. Of course I am. Um, so so that that's all pretty good. But, yeah, so so they're in that, they're in that scene. They Vinny has the diamond. Uh, Tony and, and Avi are looking for it. Tony has his friend Desert Eagle point five zero, um, and yeah, yeah. well, which we'll have to talk about that too. But we um, not only will we have to talk about, we've talked about that scene before. <laughs> oh yes, I'm sure. I have put that clip in episodes before. While your gun <laughs> says replica, mine says 
Desert Eagle. Desert Eagle. <laughs> like a prick. You're having second thoughts. You're shrinking. And your two little balls are shrinking with you. And the fact that you've got replica written down the side of your gun. <laughs> and the fact that I've got Desert Eagle. Point five out. Written on side of mine. Should precipitate your balls into shrinking along with your presence. Yeah, so so you know they're they're in that that back room and Vinny says uh they're like, So where's the diamond? And he's like, Well the dog ate it. And Avi says to Tony, look in the dog. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> Which is like one of the funniest things. I, he, I, would like then, uh, to, I would like to respond with what I believe Ben is going to say uh, because it is one of my favorite lines from the movie. Bullet to Tony says, it's not a can to bake beans now, is it? Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, then let's have a look, shall we? Tony? Well, look in the dock. You mean look in the dock? I mean, open him up. It's not a fucking tin of baked beans. What do you mean, open him up? You know what I mean. And and then he goes and he starts like examining the dog, like uh, like he's about to like cut it open or look in its throat. And he says it's squeaking. To which Avi replies, "You never heard a dog squeak before, dude." I fucking love the fact. A dog swallowing a squeaky toy is the funniest goddamn thing that's ever happened in the last 30 years. I mean, it's it's uh, very similar to the crocodile swallowing the clock in Peter Pan or the alligator, whatever no, it is, like swallowing and taking clock. What you said was really gay, Ben. What I said was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, there's another scene after, after Sol and Vinny and them have uh, gotten away from Tony and Avi in the restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, and I I think, no, it has to be before that scene in the back room because at this point, Tony is alive. Saul and Vinny have gotten the diamond. They've run away. I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's after. It has to be after it because that scene is the one where, um, in the front of the restaurant is the one where Bullet Tooth Tony tells him, your gun says replica down the side of it. Mine says Desert Eagle .50. Uh, and then in this scene, Saul and, and Vinny are sitting in a car uh, outside of Boris's house, I believe. Uh, Vinny says something about them being in danger. And Saul says, who's going to mug two black fellas holding pistols sat in a car that's worth right? less than your shirt? Yes. Yes. OK. Uh, there's another another good line. Uh, it's when Avi is talking to Doug the head, uh, his cousin. And they're trying to he's trying to set him up with Bullet Tooth Tony to help him find Frankie Fourfingers. And Doug is telling him who who Bull to Tony is, and he's re relaying a scene about uh, and you know we actually see it as Doug tells in the story about Bull Tooth Tony encountering somebody and getting shot six times. Uh, the, uh, to which the Asian says, guy, right? Who's like, yeah, I yeah, hate yeah, you, yeah. I hate yeah. you, I'm gonna shoot you, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, why won't you die? Um, so Abby says six times, and Doug replies in one sitting, which I. I fucking love in one sitting as a response to, you know, somebody getting shot six times. Uh, I think an, another great, uh, another great line or another great scene is when we actually see bullet tooth Tony while Doug is trying to call him. 
Uh, he is slamming somebody's head in a car door. Yes. Um, repeatedly uh, and very angrily. I don't know if you know this, Ben, but the, the person whose head he's slamming into the uh, the car door is the cinematographer for the movie. <laughs> That's oh, his nice. little cameo, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so so he's, he's you know slamming the dude's head into the car door, uh, and, then and then he, just, and then he, he just forward, abruptly he stops. Forward. Hello? <laughs> yeah. No, no, he says bonjour. He does say bonjour. That's right. Dude, Vinny Jones in this movie as Bullet Tooth Tony. Come on. I know we've been gushing over these performances. You can't. This movie could not be more perfectly cast than it is, right? Oh, no, it's it's beautiful. Bullet Tooth Tony is cast incredibly Everybody's perfectly. Everybody's cast perfectly. But Bullet um, Tooth Tony is fucking fantastic. Boris is even uh, fucking fantastic, you know? <laughs> right, which uh, takes me to my next scene um, where Tony is, I think, interrogating uh, Saul and Vinny, and they mention Boris. And he says, Boris, like Boris the Blade... Like Boris the Bullet Dodger. Oh, yes! And Abby says, why do they call him Boris the Bullet Dodger? Because he dodges bullets, Abby. <laughs> Uzbekistanian. I've been dealing with those sneaky Russian dogs. <laughs> Give me a name. No, no. Boris. Boris the Blade? Yeah. As in Boris the Bullet Dodger. Why do they call him the Bullet Dodger? Because he dodges bullets, Abby. <laughs> Exactly. Because he dodges bullets, Abby. Dude, that, that, like, is, that is where we need to actually, we need to dive into this. We need to go beyond the fact that you and I clearly love this movie and love its dialogue and love all this stuff. And we've already talked about the Guy Ritchie of it, the Jason Statham of it. You and I need to actually get down to the nitty gritty. Why does this script on paper read so stupid but play so well? You know what I mean is the sense that it's like, He's Boris. Boris the bullet dodger. Why does he why is he called that? Because he dodges bullets. If you read that on the page, I feel like both of you and I would be like, fuck that. That's stupid. But the way that Guy Ritchie puts it together is well, what the makes way, it magical. The way Bullet Two Tony delivers that line. Exactly. Because he dodges exactly. Bullets, the, the delivery on paper, that line is stupid. But yeah, on it's, delivery, it's pretty bad if you read it without without exactly delivery, yeah. on delivery that becomes the greatest thing that you and I will quote for the rest of fucking time. <laughs> and and I do I I regularly say because he dodges so, bullets. Abby. So that that's the thing that's why I love and I'm so glad that you and I have started this um, Jason Statham gets guns pointed at him series or whatever the fuck we're calling it, you know, that, you know, you, you are the story ended one. You are the one who will look past some of the, um, the artistic or tourist director choices for the sake of the story. This is a moment that I think both of us cannot deny. This moment is stupid on the page. It comes across only because this is a visual and, you know, audio cinema experience right i i would say largely it comes across only because of that i think if you have a good imagination and you're reading this in a book you can get some enjoyment out of this but, line but, that, but you have to have time, a good imagination that's what a director does that i've had so many people like justin included in the last few months justin was like what the fuck does the director do and it's not just putting the camera in the right place the director is getting the actors to make the shit they say believable and this is the best example. This line is fucking bare bones, stupid minimum. But since Bullet Tooth Tony, aka Vinnie Jones, says it, we are just like, 
Okay, never going to give it a second thought. That's what I think. And well, if, if he ever said it to me in real life, I would cower in fear and kowtow to him. You know. <laughs> I mean, the the disbelief in his voice, like he he's saying, uh, it's fucking obvious, isn't it? Without saying that, I think at the same time, in comparison, when you talk about the fear in his voice, I think about the uncertainty in his voice when he says, you know, it's not a can to pick beans when he is asked to open the dog, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, what a dog. director does. That's what a director controls. That's what makes a movie, those emotions, and once again, those micro-expressions. And this movie is a fucking masterclass in every goddamn angle of that notion. I have just a couple things, uh, little scenes left. So I'm going to jump to the end because I, th- I think the, the one I want to say for last is... Before it chronologically, but I think it's in importance. Sure, it, sure. it should go last. So at the end, Turkish and Tommy have uh, they've gone back to the Pikey camp to try to get Mickey to fight for them some more because they think that they can make money off of his boxing. Okay. Um, and like everything's kind of calmed down with with regards to. Well, actually, at this point, Bricktop's dead, so they're not really in fear of their lives anymore. Oh, you're talking about like the um, end of the end of the movie. The end. The end. Yeah, the okay. End, okay. Yeah. When the, yeah. like the cops show up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. And and one of the cops. Uh, looks at at uh, looks at them and says, "What's in the car?" And Turkish replies, "Seats in the steering wheel." <laughs> Dude, once again, Jason Statham being like, "I am an actor. I don't give a fuck what you say when I'm going to do 20 more years of action movies. I am an actor." <laughs> Absolutely. So like that's seats that's in a the steering line. wheel. I don't know. Uh, seats in the steering wheel. I don't know. <laughs> seats in the steering wheel. I'll put the clip in sarcasm. Because so clearly uh, Ben and I are not doing justice to it. I will put the clip in for sure. Seats and what's the problem? What's in the car? Seats in a steering wheel. What do you know about gypsies? Um, all right, so there's that one, and then Tommy loves uh, that dog. He's always playing around with it. Come on, Tommy, <laughs> you fool! Come in, get in the car. He loves that dog. <laughs> yeah, one. And Tommy's like acting confused, like he doesn't. He's like. It is. It is so. Come here, Daisy. <laughs> in, in a perfect world, as I've talked about, in a perfect world, Kira Allen would have won Best Actress because of Run. You know that type of thing. Mm. In a perfect world, Jason Satham in two thousand, early two thousand one, he would have won Best Actor for Snatch because when he's like, you know, Tommy, you fool, stop playing around with the dog. He's so fucking believable. You know, yeah. Oh, it yeah. does not come across as somebody who's just trying to avoid the cops, trying to outmaneuver the cops like he does so much in much of his later Hitman movies. It is so naturalistic. I know we talked about it in the Machanic episode, but I feel it's in the same way. Anybody who thinks Jason Statham is a bad actor, anybody who thinks Nicolas Cage is a bad actor, you're a fucking fool. You have tunnel vision. Uh, so for the, for the last one, I, it needs a little more setup. OK, um, at this point. So Turkish and Tommy uh, had Mickey replace Gorgeous George in the first fight. He knocks the dude out when he's supposed to take a dive. Uh, the The way that they are going to make it up to Bricktop is that they're going to have another fight, and Mickey's going to take a dive in this one. Um, leading up to this fight, Bricktop burns down Mickey's mom's caravan, and he puts uh, people with guns outside the Pikey camp to shoot them up should anything go wrong. Yeah. Um, so... Mickey agrees to the fight. He's like, you know, so there's no more carnage. I'll, I'll do the fight. Uh, except he says carnage. Carnage. Um, well, he, he probably said. 
you know, that type of thing. <laughs> uh, so we have so, not yet talked about Brad Pitt's performance, which you should get to. But please continue. <laughs> so we get into the to the fight. You know, they they are at this point in, in the like they've made it past the first round. Turkish is in the corner, always telling them like fucking make it look good. But whatever you do, don't knock him out. Oh, my God. Um, Such fantastic visual filmmaking. The slow, the change of speed ramping. You know me, Ben. I hate speed ramping. I hate slow motion versus fast motion in a scene, that type of thing. This does it perfectly. Like, when Jason Statham is yelling, like, and you bet, but that's the thing. He's yelling in slow motion physically, but the sound is not slow motion. And... I'm like beautiful. Okay, please continue. I'm sorry. I'm I'm just gushing at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, Brad Pitt goes down, and and they say like I think Turkish and as the narrator says at this point like he just has to stay down. We do those close and, zooms in the boxing corners. Yeah, yeah. And Brad Pitt flies up from the ground from the ground and knocks out uh, his opponent. And then we you know we move over to the scene where they're leaving the boxing ring and and. Uh, Bricktop is like, we have to kill them because they, they didn't do what they were supposed We're to do. We're out of here first. Yeah, for whatever he says. Yep, yep. Right. So uh, this is the point where where this line is delivered as narration from Turkish. He says, for every action, there's a reaction. And a pikey reaction is quite a fucking thing. <laughs> and doesn't he even have that. Th- he has that line where Turkish says, or Jason says from Turkish says something like, you know, we all just stood dumbfounded in shock, but he didn't because he knew what was yeah, coming. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He says, uh, you, you flinch and you make a dumb face. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, but Mickey didn't. And, uh, and that's, yeah. So, so this is the, that line. I, I love it in particular because of course, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction is the, the physics principle. It is something that is used very regularly in what this is movie. That, is that Newton's first law? Equal opposite reactions? Or is that third law? I don't know. Um, it's not third law. Okay. It might be I first or think. second. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> yeah, it's probably first Whatever. or second. Uh, it might be zeroth law. The zeroth oh, law yeah. is New- there is Newton, a game and you Newton, are playing it. Newton indexed by zero, of course. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, um, no, but I know what you're saying. And that's why I think my hot take on this movie is I have no take thematically. I really want to point out that in this quote, he says, for every action, there's a reaction. And in juxtaposition to the common quote, yeah, I yeah. think that that is supposed to highlight that what the Pike, how the Pikes respond is not equal and opposite. The Pikes give you more than you gave them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's that's what I think we're getting here. And so they're just just from like they're the a, removal uh, recumbrance, their reflection, you know, they are they are the um, the absorption of kinetic into potential energy. Right. And, I, and it, that is that is portrayed or, or displayed or told to us simply through the removal of words from a common phrase. Yes. That's something that I find very intriguing. Goes back to the um, Rube Goldberg aspect I was talking about with Arrested Development. Absolutely. Right. So so he says for every action, there's a reaction and a pikey reaction is quite a fucking thing. And uh, that's when we see uh, the Pikes, of course, were waiting in the woods and they gunned down the, the gunners. Which and, uh, also we see with Bricktop. Give me the fucking shooter. I'll give you the fucking shooter. You know? And yeah. Uh, yeah. I said something like, I'll, I'll give you the shooter. I cunt. can. I, I love the fact that we do not see Bricktop get his head blown away. You know? I mean, I love that we get the implication that Bricktop is killed by the Pikes, you know, but I am so glad that we don't see it. Because I think that's a modern Hollywood thing is seeing the gore. Guy Ritchie restraining himself from showing that gore is a fucking 
delight for me in 2023. Sure. And that and so that's the moment whenever Bricktop is getting shot that we were just talking about when we see um, Turkish and Tommy like flinch and make a face mm-hmm. and, and Mickey didn't because he was ready. But that uh, Mickey didn't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, oh and that was God. that was a beautiful thing. If you want to talk about the milk on the windshield and that whole um, well, I, sequence, I, I, I would, think that's I would where really the biggest character li- character collision comes into play. Which Absolutely, is where I really love this movie, and um, I think it's something you and I have talked about before. And and the cinema audience knows I love coincidence, and I love coincidence solely in movies. You know, I love the fact that. Mm, the criticism, maybe the best way to say it, is like when movies happen and storylines play out, that certain things occur and critics of it go, well, that was by coincidence, you know? And this came into big play with um, our Nice Guys discussion, where I was like, basically every plot beat is coincidence. But I do remember, I even though I have not listened to that uh, recording in a while, Ben, I do remember saying, yes, everything happens in this movie by coincidence, but you cannot forget the fact that we are watching a movie that is created by, in some sense, a god who controls every single motion of this movie. So nothing is really coincidental as it is in real life. And I think I appreciate, if you can remember, Ben, the coincidence of the nice guys, I appreciate the coincidences of Snatch more because it is literally just a, like, lynch point of universality if that makes sense. When I think of the nice guys, I think of all of our characters just haphazardly, seemingly coming together by, like, small strands when the plot needs them to. I think of Snatch as all of our plot lines coming together for one grand moment that changes everybody's intuition and lives. I think think that that's a good way to look at it. And and honestly... Uh, as as much as you know, there are things that we kind of harp on the Marvel universe for. Mm-hmm. I would say that's one thing that they did well with with uh, the Avengers uh, Endgame setup. You know, oh, it's sure, like there's sure. fucking ten years of movies leading up to this. Are you are you also thinking of the Endgame? The stuff when they go back in time and like Tony Stark meets his father, Captain America sees lady lady woman that he I, loves. I guess type of thing. I'm like I'm more thinking about just the culmination or or the coming together of all the heroes to fight okay, uh, Thanos. Okay. That part of it, you know, I, there I have problems with the whole I'm time travel thing. I'm thinking more of like the nice guys is like the tendrils of a jellyfish. Like the tendrils, there's like an almost uncountable amount of tendrils of a jellyfish, you know, from a human eye. But as they waft and wave through the water, some of them touch and some of them gather and stuff like that. I see this movie as more of all of these fabrics were free in the past. They had to be brought together by one point, and they're free from that point after. Like, I think that there is a more of a clear connection and tie-in in this fucking car driving scene with the milk and, and Boris the Blade walking around like a goddamn goose with that bag over his head, which is amazing, you know? Mm. I, I think there's a difference between fully coincidental as the waves that take place in the Nice Guys versus a crafted wave that comes together in Guy Ritchie movies. And I don't think I'm explaining that correctly, but what do you take from that? <laughs> well, I, I also don't think that you're explaining it correctly because this is like by like the definition of a coincidence that just kind of seems to happen. Like there's there's no good reason that all these people are driving down that same road at the same time. Sure, sure. Uh, other than that they're all kind of 
looking for the same diamond with you so maybe they're that, in the same area do you understand more than i'm saying this in in this movie the coincidence happens at one unified point where in something like the nice guys the coincidence happens throughout the movie like oh localized yes, versus universally okay I guess, yeah maybe. so there's like one like linchpin yeah, that might be moment. the better way to say what i'm uh describe what i'm explaining I think, yeah, I think no, locally you. versus universally, I like the local coincidence. Like okay. in this movie or a Tarantino movie, I don't, as much as you know, Nice Guys is one of my favorite, if not, if, I remember, my, if I'm remembering my um, rankings correctly, my favorite Shane Black movie. I like local versus universal coincidences. No, I, I'm with you. I, it, it sounds like it's more, more of um, the fact that this entire plot doesn't, rely on well the majority of this movie does not rely on coincidence but yes, there is one specific yes. moment that that really turns things around that's what makes it that more is of a character collision to me where i'm more turned off in comparison even though i i you know that actually well no i can say for a fact i like this better than the nice guys sorry sorry shane black yeah, the beginning black. of that movie is a coincidence the little kid looking at the misty mountains porn mag and right then misty mountains crashes into his backyard that is a manufactured global coincidence you know right. where this movie is more like a chess game that becomes a local coincidence where they set up all the pieces that become coincidental rather than just going hey this is what we got and you slept with chuck chutney that no i'm sorry that's that's the other one that's that's kiss kiss bang bang i'm confusing them all except for fucking the predators which which we should probably be happy about right but you know what i'm Uh, saying right no i no i do um the fact that the coincidence we get is actually kind of a payoff exactly um, it from from some setup it feels more um, satisfactory than anything, whether it be positive or negative for our main characters in The Nice Guys does. Because I do, I never want to misrepresent that. While I say The Nice Guys is a movie based on coincidence, those coincidences, coincidences both work for and against our main characters. Yes. Which yeah. is the, the fucking pro of that movie, which is why that movie is so good. Because the coincidences of noir are both you know, in the ebbs and flows of our storyline. Yeah, it's not it's not all positive coincidences. Yeah. 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 So I, I I think I think this kind of kind of comes back to the Rube Goldberg thing. It's like these all these people were set on a track at some point mm-hmm. and and this is the moment that, that that those tracks cross, you know, all at the same time. Because uh, they, they cross like we have two tracks crossing multiple times throughout the movie. Sure. And this is the point where all three come together. So so it, it seems more masterful as opposed to a movie where everything that happens is a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. It's and like, I, I would say it actually seems more masterful than other um, dual storylines. You know, I think this movie, uh, Guy Ritchie as a whole, and not only Snatch, but Guy Ritchie as a whole, like I said, is um, indebted very much to Quentin Tarantino and Pulp Fiction. I think Pulp Fiction is um, a dual storyline movie that never really lets those two storylines meet each other. And maybe that's purposeful, but when Bruce Willis shoots um, Travis Tavolta, I'm just like, yeah, I guess this is where these come together, but both of their storylines are done. I don't care anymore. When right. all our storylines come together and snatch, I'm like, this means something. This has implications 
for the way that these storylines are going to flay out. I'm doing a little hand motion, Ben, that you can't see because we don't have our cameras on. But the way they flay out from here on for the last 30 minutes of the movie, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever. Yeah, the whole resu- the resolution of the exactly. movie actually. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think that's where I actually do, and th- this might be my hot take for this discussion, I really kind of do like Guy Ritchie's storytelling in his earlier career better than Tarantino because Tarantino does the non-linearity thing. Where even when, you know, Vincent Vega, Travis DeVolta gets shot by Bruce Willis, you still know he has to do X, Y, and Z because it's nonlinear. Here, mm. we don't have that nonlinearity. When somebody dies, or, or uh, nobody dies in the movie, but like when an impact happens. When Tony dies. Yeah, absolutely. When, when something happens in the movie with impact, you go, how is this going to change the rest of the story? You actually start to think. Where in Tarantino movies, it's like, well, I kind of know where this is going. And I'm not somebody who says, I don't think, because you know me, Ben, I love spoilers. I love the journey rather than the ending. But I think this is an example compared to Tarantino of me going, yeah, well, I know he has to save Uma Thurman from the heroin overdose. I don't really care if he dies later on, you know? We're here in this movie. I'm like, I give a shit about Turkish. I love that he gets the diamond at the end, and he gets to yell at Tommy about finding the dog. You know, no, that, that's a that's a good point. The fact that the Tarantino payoff comes at a time where it can't be impactful anymore, um, like that's just inherently going to be worse than the payoff that can be impactful. I also think there's a layer to, as you say, that I think Tarantino is like Tarantino makes something pay off before you realize it. You know, like. The Tarantino moment happens halfway through his movies, but when you reach the end, you go, oh, shit, that's what was going on? I kind of like the—maybe this is a basic bitch notion to me, but I like getting the payoff at the end of my movie, you know? I like the ending being, whoa, that's what was going on. I would I actually do prefer that in Guy Ritchie than Tarantino going, hey, remember that? Remember that? Remember that from an hour ago? That's what you should have cared about. And then, you know, it, it ties back to what we said about the cracked.com bullshit. Tarantino lends himself to going, hey, 17 things you didn't think about five months ago when you watch Pulp Fiction. And it's like, no, yeah, I got all those things. They just didn't really matter to me because I watched the whole fucking movie, you know? Right. At least Snatch has the thing at the very end of the movie when the credits start to roll. I go, huh, that was clever. That was cool. I'm not saying I think about it more or less than the Tarantino twists, but at least it leaves me at the credits with something when I go to my letterbox to review it. I go, that was fucking neat, you know? Like Marge Simpson going, potatoes. I just think they're neat, you know? (laughs) <laughs> Nobody gives a shit about potatoes, but if you can make a potato interesting, that's fucking fun, right? <laughs> Definitely. I, I don't think Ben and I are, either of us are saying Tarantino is better or worse than Guy Ritchie. I think what we're saying is Snatch is a goddamn good fucking movie. <laughs> yes, it is. And probably one I'm much more likely to go back and rewatch than I am uh, Pulp Fiction. But specifically i normally like you know often i rent the movies that we are um that we review sure, sure. or that we talk about i uh, i actually bought snatch that is so uh, awesome to hear because i actually when we were sitting down to record this episode um when we had planned it you know that type of thing i sat down to watch it 
I did my little um, – I have a <laughs> – nobody should be surprised. Um, I have multiple hard drives. Uh, I have five now, I think. I just bought a new one for, for this last Christmas. I have six, you know. I have a f- spreadsheet, which is every movie, every copy of movie or TV show and which hard drive it's on. And, you know, I went and I was like, Snatch, where's that? Turns out I have it on two of my hard drives. Nice. I ended up watching this on Hulu. So I could watch it with subtitles for the first time. <laughs> nice. You could actually know what Brad Pitt was saying. You know, guess what? Most of the time, his subtitles were in parentheses, indistinct. <laughs> oh wow! On uh, yeah. <laughs> on Amazon Prime, where I bought it, the, his subtitles were actually subtitles. Well, for the whole time. Yeah. Holy shit! I don't think there was any of it that wasn't. A, a lot of the stuff he said that I could understand, like "I want a caravan for me, mop." That was subtitled appropriately, but then blah, blah, blah would say indistinct in parentheses on Hulu. I'll have to look at it again, but I don't remember seeing indistinct. That is so fucking cool. This movie is amazing. And I think that, you know, now um, after almost two and a half hours, uh, Ben and I are winding down on our discussion about this. I just want to reiterate this. Um, I do not think I would put this movie. Oh, well, I know I would not put this movie in my top 10. I would not put this movie in my top 50. If you probably stressed me to do a top 100, this would be in there. Because I think that while my favorite movies are movies that have meaning, thematic messages, and stuff like that, this is a story for story's sake. And stories need stories for story's sake. And this movie does it better than goddamn anything I've ever fucking seen before, Ben. And I am so glad that we re-rewatched it. I'm so glad that I got to revisit it in this um, older layer of me being more of a film critic. I have nothing against this movie. You know what I said at the start? You know what I like about this movie? The movie parts. You know when there's characters, movings on screen? Movings? Characters, movings on screens? I'm doing my Boris the Blade. I like the characters, movings on screens. I love this movie. This is a fantastic A-grade movie that Guy Ritchie pumped out in his early career, and I will never fucking forget it. Same. I mean, really. It's, um, to be honest, I mean, I I haven't thought about it because I don't do rankings the way that you do. Sure, sure. Uh, But if I I were to really sit down and rank, this might end up in my top 50. Right on, Um, right on. Like, it, it is... A very solid movie. As as the cinema audience, as I know, you're a more story-oriented person, of course. And right. if, I, as far as everything you and I have ever talked about on the main feed of the podcast, Patreon a little different, of course. This is, like, story-oriented to Ben, you know? Like, the, right. the, the opening credits of the movie might as well end with, like, story-oriented for Ben, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, it like, this movie from beginning to end is a story that is is a you know a good time to watch yes, and yes. there's no like there's no confusion about what it's trying to do or trying to be or anything of that nature so i i don't know like it, it really could end up in the top 50 especially because of how good some of the dialogue is absolutely and i uh, think that is why it is worth talking about and i just want to harp on it at this this little last part of our discussion is because i i think for me especially it's become this revelation but you know for you to agree with it is that you know stories can be stories stories don't need this grander meaning and like i said at the start i Let's start like an hour ago, two hours ago, whatever the fuck it was. I don't think there is a grander meaning to this. I don't think Guy Ritchie is trying to give us any big goddamn theme, which I usually love to nitpick out of movies, you know? I Mm -hmm. think this is 
a literal interpretation of the modern era. Let's all gather around a campfire. And yeah, it's not a campfire anymore. It's the glow of a TV screen, of a cinema screen. Let's all gather around and listen to a good story. And Mm -hmm. if I'm not fucking Rob, this is the thing we need a little bit more of as far as I'm concerned, you know? And Ben (laughs) would agree with, because Ben, I think you and I agreed that, you know, the two best movies of last year were Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, and Barbarian. And there was a lot to take from story-wise. There was a lot to take from meaning and thematic-wise. But every now and again, we just need a good, and I really don't like to say this term, but I think it does fit appropriately, turn your brain off and just have a good time. Escapism. I agree that this is this gives you this is a good time. This this is a time machine of a story. But I don't think that this is a turn your brain off story. And that's because of the dialogue. I also would agree. I also would agree that this dialogue is so smart and so poignant and so sharp that if you turn your brain off, you're missing half the movie. That's right. The fact that that I said at the start of the, um, you know, if I throw a dog a bone, I don't want to know if it tastes good or not. That is a smart line of dialogue. Yeah. This movie's so, great. This movie's fucking great. Uh, ben, I don't know if I said this earlier. I just want to read it. I gave it five out of five stars on Letterboxd. I'm sure. You did. That's, that's I'm, rare. I'm sure I'm going to get some hate from that, you know, because uh, you, most people are like, what the fuck is wrong with you? That type of thing. Um, this movie I, is immaculate. That makes me curious. Uh, you mentioned this not being in your top 50. Do you have 50 movies that are five-star movies? I uh, that I would rank before this absolutely yeah, yeah. that are um, they're they're all five star that's what I was curious about every Matrix movie every Henry Selleck oh, movie I don't need the list I was just curious <laughs> oh, okay you, okay I was curious if every movie that is above this in your top fifty is also rated better in that way in I, the five star okay that that's actually a good a good point Ben I try to do that you know. There's very rarely that I put a movie at a lesser star ranking that I like better than another movie with a higher star ranking. I really Mm -hmm. try to avoid that. It comes down to the crazy scenarios where I think, like, I liked a movie more than I respected it or respected a movie more than I liked it type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's really, really rare. I usually – those usually are proportional. Rather than inversely proportional. Yeah. I was curious. I would actually say Fight Club is one of those. I really dislike Fight Club as a movie, but I respect it as a satire. Like a lot, you know? Okay. Um but I would put Fight Club below this, so that wouldn't land in the in the ranking uh type of thing. Right. I got you. Cool. I am so glad at the end of the discussion. If there's nothing else, other scenes you want to mention, I'm going to breeze through no, my notes I, as I as I, I do some of this. Um, so I actually want to point out to the oh, audience, sure, I actually sure. took notes while you I watched did. this movie. Handwritten or? Um, they are handwritten. Um, and I was sitting at my desk because my, my wife was, I think, asleep in the living room when I watched this. Not watching this with you? Jesus. Our no, whole she cinema was... audience is going to call for divorce immediately. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, yeah, so I watched this at my desk and I, I was sitting here and I had a notepad handy and I was like, I'm going to, like, there's just too many lines. I'm not going to remember them all. So like, I need to, I need to jot things down. So I was actually in the dark writing while I was not looking at my notepad. Uh, and you, my notes are actually pretty legible. You know what? So you know impressive. what? As you say that, I, I'm actually glad. I have a lot of my notes are just quotes from this movie. How about at the end of this episode, this actual discussion? Let's just run through some quotes if we didn't cover them already. I know I have one from Bricktop. In the quiet words of the Virgin Mary, come again. 
Oh man, I don't know that I that I have any other that I haven't mentioned. Um, I I have one. Do you hear that, Doug? I'm coming to London. I don't know why. That's not like a good line in terms of dialogue. The way Dennis Farina delivers that, I love. Absolutely. Heavy, I'm sure he can play. Well, not with my goods, he isn't. You got a toothbrush? We're going to London. Do you hear that, Doug? I'm coming to London. Heavy. Shut up and sit down, you big bald fuck. I don't like leaving my own country, Doug, and I especially don't like leaving it for anything less than warm, sandy beaches and cocktails with little straw hats. We've we've got sandy beaches. So who the fuck wants to see him? I hope that you can appreciate the concern I have for my friend Frankie. I'm going to find him, Doug, and you're going to help me find him, and we're going to start at that fight. Do you like Dags? 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 Yeah. Oh, Dags? Dogs. Dogs. Yeah, I like Dags. Yeah, I like Dags. <laughs> um, um, we should so mention if, if the uh, oh, if the yeah. dogs or if the hair doesn't get away, what happens? It gets fucked. Proper fucked. What proper fucked? <laughs> I would like to mention the all bets are off lady at the bookies. Oh, all, all bets, bets are off. off. How can there be any money if all bets are off? God, she is. Feel that back. All bets are off. I am not in here to make a fucking bet. Appreciated, but all bets are off. If all bets are off, then there can't be any money, can there? I ain't fucking buying that. Well, that's Andy, because I ain't fucking selling it. It's a fact. What have you got? Nothing, really. Few coins, but no notes. She is not physically attractive to me. She is mentally attractive to me. Okay, let me give you that. Let me give you that right. <laughs> oh, there. she's a badass in that that scene when uh, she steals I, the I... gun from them. Oh my yeah. god, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, let's see. What else does she say in that scene? Do you know who you're Man. stealing from? Do you yeah. know who? Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Belongs to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you know who this book he belongs to? And of course, it's Bricktop. That's. That lady is is badass. I have, uh, I, I did not write down who she is. I don't know if she has any grander um, you know, presence in movies or something, but dude, Guy Ritchie has a knack for casting the appropriate people for the appropriate roles and that is just grade A casting right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I mean we we didn't even discuss the the whole opening with the the Jewish people pretending uh, you oh, know, to be Jewish as they go Benicio into this Del Toro store. as Frankie Fourfingers, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can't believe we yeah. mentioned. I mentioned the um the um level of uh homage that this gives to Tarantino. The whole opening sequence um as those clearly pretending to be Hasidic Jews are yeah, talking Hasidic, about yeah. the origins of the word virgin and the Virgin Mary. Right. I think that is a clear reference to Tarantino's opening scene of Reservoir Dogs, where they're talking about Madonna's. Like a virgin, her song, you know. Oh, okay. So, so the opening scene of Reservoir Dogs is Steve Buscemi going like giving a whole rant about like the fact that that song Madonna's "Like a Virgin" is about like she's getting fucked so good, it's like she's being fucked like for the first time, like she's a virgin. And right. other characters disagree with that, you know, Harvey Keitel and stuff like that. With Del oh, is Tor- that up for debate? I it is. It that... is up to some debate oh, about okay. what that opening scene okay. is about. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but that's what I took this opening scene to be. But I'm so glad you reminded me about that, Ben. Not only is that discussion an homage to Tarantino, I love the fact that the opening credits are shot over a camera panning through closed-circuit TV camera receptacles, and one of them is yeah. out of focus. I love the fact that one of them is out of focus. I think that is such um, a stylistic I also like the transition. decision. I, I also like the transition um, from the closed circuit to to the actual footage for the movie, like when they come out of the elevator. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, but no, I, I think I kind of bullet-listed a lot of the scenes I, I like the most, although we, we briefly mentioned it, but we can mention it again. Two minutes, Turkish. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> how are those sausages coming along? Five minutes, Turkish. Five minutes, Turkish. Yes. Oh my! God. It was two minutes five minutes ago. I I think I think without without anything better, let's just flip the script as Guy Ritchie did with his storytelling. Let's do snacks and restaurant before our questions. What do you think about that? Because I think we're both in agreement. I think we're both in agreement for our snacks. We should have two minute sausages and five minutes that take two minutes. How would you expand on that? <laughs> yes, it's they're gonna come. So they're two minute sausages. Mm-hmm. They five minutes after you order two minute sausages, they come out and tell you that there's five more minutes. Sure. And then ten minutes after everyone else's food gets there, you get told that there's two more minutes on them. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, and then and then you get your sausage. Staggering delay is what we're getting at, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, that's perfect. That's perfect. I actually did not have a lot of snacks for this movie. The one that was not a snack, an event. Hair coursing. I would love to actually do that in the restaurant. Oh, sure. Um, a scene we did not mention that I absolutely love, the cross cut of the um, dogs chasing the rabbit as um, what uh, Bricktop's goons are chasing Tyrone, you know? Mm. What a I'm actually, fucking I'm... Fantastically sense, fantastical sense of visual storytelling. Uh, I'm actually kind of curious how they, how they did the hair scene, um, you know, because obviously the hair gets away. Um I would imagine that they just did a bunch of shots of, like, hair alone, dogs alone, hair and dog okay. together, and then just edit them. That's my guess. I couldn't – I well, I didn't search for it, but nothing, like, popped up in my research or anything like that, you know. Um, but that I've... fucking montage is – with that music, the big – like, the big, hard, punching, coursing, like, coursing C-O-A-R-S-I-N-G, you know, like, grain – like, coarse grains of salt – like, that sound is just so amazing in that moment. That's where I'm like, Guy Ritchie's not only a great director and knows how to get out of his actors and his visual moments, but him in the editing bay must be like, this song, this song, this song. And people are like, this fucking sounds horrible. And he's like, nope, it's going to make sense, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking um, of which... And, uh, oh, yeah, go for it, go for it. I was just going to say the the music in this movie is phenomenal, like pretty much all throughout. Yes, yes, and and that is exactly what I was about to say. In the first scene, and there's a later scene that I didn't write down, but the first scene where I think Vinny is walking into the pawn shop that him and Saul own type of thing, Mm -hmm. there's this song that's playing. And it has this kind of creepy vibe, and I'm I'm gonna try and hum a little bit of it to you, Ben. But I'll put, I'll put the clip in for our our cinema audience. But it's like, and it has like a little jazzy feel.
heard this, I was like, I know this song. I know exactly what this song is. Is it from Monkey Bone? I put that on my notes. I was like, are they using a song from Monkey Bone? Which would not be from Monkey Bone because Monkey Bone came out a year later. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's a song called Ghost Town by The Specials, which was used by Henry Selick as the introduction to Beelzebub's Underworld and Wendell and Wild. <laughs> oh, okay. They used the same nice. song. Guy Ritchie used the same song as Henry Selick did fucking 14, 15 years later. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And um, not only is it cool that they use the same song, but I am patting myself on the back. And Ben, you can make fun of me as much as you want. I'm not looking for your approval. I am patting myself on the fucking back for knowing that. <laughs> it always feels good when you recognize something and can place it. It, so feels, it feels good. It feels at the good. at the very least, I can um, I can understand why why you feel good about yourself. You know, you know why it picked up on it because I think it was at a funny angle. You know, right behind <laughs> me, it was at a funny angle. We talked Wendell and Wild a month ago. It was at a funny angle, right behind me. <laughs> oh shit! Oh my god! Uh, why aren't we parked in that spot? It's too tight. It's too tight. You could fit a fucking jet plane in there, Tyrone. <laughs> <laughs> I love the com. I think I mentioned earlier. I love the comedy of Saul, uh, Vinny, and Tyrone. You know, the dog mm. swallowing the squeaky toy is like it should. On paper, I should not like it. I fucking love that shit. You know, <laughs> you never heard dogs squeak before. <laughs> so, um, yeah, back to snacks. Um, one of the snacks that we obviously yeah, have to have are, right? is is a squeaky toy. Um, you have like on the menu, like you can order a squeaky toy. That you can, that, and Would we probably are going to have to. It's a squeaky toy that in the menu it says you can't swallow, but clearly you can swallow it type of thing. Um, I was thinking that we probably are going to need to assist people in swallowing it. Oh, okay. okay. So like this is going to be, it's going to be a, an event and a snack. You order it and somebody from our staff comes out and shoves it in your throat or something. <laughs> um, that way you can squeak for the rest of the time you're there. I both love your idea, but I hate the fallout from it. So I think I've told you this before, Ben. Every time I hang out with Justin and Heather, when they have the, they have their dog, they have their dog, and the dog has actually, after two years, gotten really good at knowing I will not interact with it. Period. The reason for that is because I'm allergic to it. So I'm 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 not an animal hater. Ben also knows that I love animals. Like. I love all animals. The only fucking cor- the only fucking thing I like actually donate to and care about is like coral reefs and shit like that, you know. Um, but I will not interact with this dog because it makes me break out in hives, and it's a bummer because oh, I, I love dogs. I love I love quiet domestic pets. I should say I hate when dogs bark. I hate when cats meow. I I just want them to be quiet and just <laughs> and just snuggle me, you know that type of thing. Sure, um, sure. This dog has gotten pretty good. This dog has gotten pretty good at ignoring me. That type of thing. But this dog still does this thing of just being a son of a bitch, you know? Like, this dog will still just try and get attention wherever attention is sought. Every single time I go over to Justin Heather's, we will start to watch a movie. And Justin and I love to watch movies together. As much as he is a goober, as this podcast knows about movies, we love to watch movies together. And I would say that um, since he's been on the Southland Tales episode, he's learned a lot about movies, you know? Every single time we start to watch a movie or I go over there, 
the dog will pick up a squeaky toy. I will pretend to be friends with the dog to take the squeaky toy and zip it up in my backpack away from the dog. (laughs) I make sure that it never gets to squeak while I'm doing anything in that apartment. (laughs) And, uh, And I love it. But the dog also kind of unfortunately thinks I'm its best friend because at the end of the night at like 1 a.m. when I'm leaving... I pull out like four squeaky toys from my backpack and it has like a fucking aneurysm, you know? (laughs) And it's like, oh my God, he's showering me with squeaky toys. And it's like, I will like literally on Christmas when we all hung out, we had like a big party and like Justin and I were like, we're going to watch Catch Me If You Can because we've been wanting to watch it. Me, him and one of our other friends were trying to watch it for like months and we're like, this is the day to watch it. And right before the movie, his dog and his friend's dog that picked up a squeaky toy, they, like, just started squeaking. And I was like, hey, boy, come here, come here. Oh, yeah. And I started petting them and all this shit. Like, I literally was gaslighting them into taking their toys away from them. And I ripped them out of their hands, and I was, like, gone. I put them in, like, their fucking dryer, you know? (laughs) They didn't squeak for the rest of the night. That's all I fucking care about. Dogs should not make extraneous noise. Thank you very much. That's the end of my TED Talk. (laughs) Very nice. Uh, One one last snack for me, uh, an 84-carat diamond. Uh, We actually are going to put it on the menu as an 84-carat diamond, but it is is a, a diamond made out of 84 carats. Um, like and, carrots, and like, like C-A-R-R-O-T-S carrots? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yep. okay. Well, that actually yeah, ties into the other snack that I had. I was thinking we would have just like the mm. snatch meal, which would be an 84-carat diamond, a squeaky toy, and half a shoe. Because there's a moment ah, at the end yes. of the movie where they're like, they found a half a shoe in the dog's stomach. I would like um, to take that and add yours with the, it's 84 carrots, you know, like orange carrots type of thing. Uh, something else that maybe we need to have uh, an ethical veterinarian because this vet finds an 84 carat diamond and gives it back to them. Um, <laughs> That's actually a really good point. If I was that vet, I'd be like, I found nothing. <laughs> yeah, there was nothing in there. I don't know. There was that means this they piece of candy it. corn, you know? <laughs> yeah. They, um, they didn't know about the diamonds. So right why, well, why since, was, since yeah, we're anyway. doing things uh, backwards and Guy Ritchie style, I guess that brings us to our questions. And this is the actual one. Uh, I, had, I had very few snacks, which is why we got that out of the way. I'm actually really curious to know, I'm, and because of which, I'm going to throw it over to you first, Ben. Cinemodities and Late Night for Vagina the Movie. What do you think? Uh, <laughs> I, had, I, had get, I had to get that joke in there one more time. <laughs> Cinemodity. Probably not. Maybe at the time that it was released, but not now. Um, I, I probably wanna, not even. I actually want to stop you there. In comparison to Tarantino making his mark in the early to mid nineties, okay. I don't. Then, what do you think about with that in mind? This being a cinemodity in two thousand. No, it's it's. I would say it's not a cinemodity. Okay. Then, probably, okay. probably wasn't then. Probably, definitely isn't now. Right on. Uh, late, late night, night movie. Yeah, to late night. Yeah. One hundred percent. With late night movie being, you know, showing this to somebody late at night when you need something to watch. Uh, I have done that. I like. I literally have late night movie this movie and been like, oh, you guys have to watch Snatch, and uh, and shown this movie to other people. So yeah, late night movie. Well, course. I mean then. You know, nothing too surprising. I am in complete agreement. Cinemodities, no. Late night, abso-fucking-lutely. If anything, for the goddamn Alan Ford as Bricktop performance, 
that is one of the best performances I've ever seen. I just want to re-highlight this because I said at the start, and I want to say it again, even though this movie as a whole would not make it into like like my top 50, it would make it into my top 100 probably, Alan Ford as Bricktop, I think would get easily into like my top 20 performances ever. I okay. love Alan Ford as Bricktop. The whole nemesis speech, do you know what nemesis means? You know, that yeah, type that of thing. Great. Oh my, do you know who I am? No, no, I do. Well, that will make this encounter easy, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> oh my God, he is so fucking good in this movie. And yep. if if not, if like I said, in almost inverse, if not for the Alan Ford performance, this movie as a whole, I mean, you know me, Ben, I love the late night conversations. I love getting the nitty gritty detail, like the ghost in the shell, like, what does it mean for a robot to be alive? Like, how much of the, um, what, the ship of Dionysus, whatever that story is, like, how much can you replace of yourself while it's still yourself? Mm-hmm. I love that late-night discussion. This is the late-night aspect where I'm like, yeah, yep, I get you. If you just want to have a good time laying back with some friends, maybe having a goofy goofball conversation, more so than Machanic Resurrection, I'm not saying you're going to point out a color-coded map of the arms dealer's market share in this movie. You're going to have a good time. This is an absolute late-night movie, man. This is, dare I say, which we need to go through more of. I think this is Guy Ritchie's... Ma- mm, no, I'm actually wrong. This is his second magnum opus. I like Revolver better than this. I was, I was going to guess Revolver. That That is definitely seems to be the movie that you talk and about the most. I guess that leads us to our next actual point of discussion. As we said at the start of this, we have no goddamn good information about when the United States of America is going to get a release date, if any at all, for Operation A Fortune Ruse de Guerre. So if we need to fill in another Jason Statham movie, I am going to be the one to say, Ben, hey, we have to do Revolver. Because not only is it Jason Statham, it's Jason Statham with hair, It's also Jason Statham doing an incredible, psychological, fundamentally disturbing role. And it's a movie that you and I watched back in Ohio where I remember at the end of it you said, I don't get it. I would love for us to watch it again and actually get into what is to get about it. What do you think? (laughs) It sounds perfect. I'm excited. Revolver is on my list of movies to rewatch anyway. Well, then, next time, if Ben and I are not doing Revolver... Next time you hear us, we're doing Missing. The ser- the uh, God damn it, I did it again! The Searching to Sequel! Why is that so easy to say? <laughs> um, so either Ben and I are going to be doing our next Jason Statham, or we are going to be continuing the Screen Life Universe. And for anybody out there in the cinema audience who does not know what the fuck we're talking about with the Screen Life Universe, you are clearly not listening to our Patreon, where Ben and I have discussed the entire cinematic universe of movies that take place on computer screens from the Basilev's company. Um, Ben, what do you want to say about our Patreon that is not as abrasively, egregiously off-putting as what I just said about it? (laughs) Uh... The Patreons where we talk about movies that our fans request and movies that we want to talk about, as well as talking about Adventure Time uh, once a month. So every month you'll get a fan request, you'll get a Rob or Ben request, and you'll get an Adventure Time episode. Yes. And we have a lot of fun on the Patreon, and we think that you'll have a lot of fun too if you come check it out. 
and you know if you if you subscribe at that uh, what is it the ten dollar yep yep the ten dollar threshold you will be able to request movies and we will talk about a movie that you want us to watch um and and probably more than one because you know we we kind of rotate through our patrons that uh that have earned or paid for that privilege so um we as always i want to say thank you to the people who are already on our patreon and I would like to say, if you're not there and you enjoy this content even a little bit, you should come check it out because there's a lot more yeah, that I, you I are missing out I kind of want to say, with this Statham series, if you like what Ben and I have been doing with Statham, you would love literally the last two years of our Patreon choices, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I mean, probably, We, we yeah. went into Matchstick Men with Cage, Nicolas Cage, that type of thing. Like, that was a yeah, big deal. Like, that has resonated for the last two years. I mean, you know, that type of yeah. stuff. Um, with that being said, we've been doing the Patreon for a little over two years now. If you sign up at the $5 tier today, you will get access not only to the episodes that come out, you know, three times a month in the future, you will get access immediately to all of those backlog episodes. That is literally more episodes than you can listen to within one day, okay? So, like, a $5 $5 Patreon subscription to us to keep the podcast going because we also do this. Ben and I, we're not, you know, we're not— these crazy crypto scammers. We're not gambling your money away. Every single dollar that you put into our Patreon is going back into the podcast, whether it be to keep the podcast going, to get Ben new mics because Ben can't, you know, talk through cheesecloths, it seems. Um, but, you know, that that's an old joke. That happened like a year ago. I'm sorry, Ben, if that upsets no, you. I, it's, but, but it's, it's, it's a realistic use of, of the money. We use it to upgrade our equipment. It's always going to better this podcast. And, you know, if, if you sure. are okay with giving us five bucks just to get a literal multiple days worth of content just to let us keep this going we love it we love you guys at what 24 months three episodes a month we're we're talking what 48 6 72 additional episodes literally the 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 multiplication you the multiplication problem you just described is an unsolved mathematical problem. <laughs> and um, everybody should pay $5 on Patreon to submit to us what they think the answer is. <laughs> there you go. That's right. It's a millennium problem. Well, um, I, I think also, uh, speaking of our Patreon, at the end of the discussion, if uh, Ben, please push back on me because we have the power of editing, of course. Um, but I think that after this discussion on Snatch, uh, Ben and I are going to do Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels to... Um, kind of push back on some of the critics' arguments about how similar these two movies are. Would you say uh, that's yeah. fair, Ben? Yeah, on the Patreon, absolutely. Yeah, Lock, Stock, yeah. and Two Smoking Barrels will probably be our next uh, Our Choice movie Yeah, that we do. Um, and this that, is a great movie, and we, uh, we, have to, we have to yell at some of these fucking critics because, like, I, I think, like we said in this, in this episode, um, yeah, there are some similarities, but they're not the same movie. It's different from the examples I listed earlier that I don't have pulled up in my notes right now. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll come to that conversation a little more prepared than I was today for that because I didn't know that, that people said this about these movies. Uh, but, you know what? Then you're again, also going to come with a better British accent is what you're saying, you know? Some of these. Oi, governor! At uh, least our schools! <laughs> I don't know why that's my favorite British line to say. I've seen that video once. That's a video from like 17 years ago. No, seven years ago or something like that. I can't say that I've ever seen it. So it took me a while to realize what you were talking about. At least our schools aren't Call of Duty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 
Well, with that all being said about our Patreon, if you also like what you hear, if you have any arguments against us or for us, please email us at cinemodities at gmail.com. Um, if you want to reach out to us uh, specifically, uh, of course, for me, it's cinemodities at gmail.com. Ben, I mean, there's been some stuff you've pitched in the past. I don't know if you have any oh. recent stuff to pitch or anything like that. Maybe the cinema's email is the same way to go, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, really, uh, obviously the life counter is still out there, and if you're playing Magic, you should use it. Sure, um, I'll copy that link once again, as I always do. <laughs> but uh, but no, outside of that, I mean, I'm I'm... This is pretty much what I'm spending most of my time that I'm not working on. Okay, so. right on, right on. With that being said, how do we end this episode? And Ben, I am legitimately asking you this time, because in my notes for ending music, I literally wrote down the main jazzy theme in reverse. <laughs> I don't know what the main jazzy theme is for, for Snatch. I, I, I couldn't tell you. I guess um, I just gotta like rewatch it and maybe watch like the opening credits and be like, oh, that jazzy theme, right? Pro- <laughs> you know? Probably. Um, you could also just just do a bunch of crazy edits of me trying to sound British for the cinematics thing. I am a hundred percent gonna do that. That might have also come earlier in the podcast because that was really <laughs> fucking funny, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Mortys, fucking movies with Rob Bitt and Zach, where we take the piss about weird fucking movies, eh? Sometimes they rock, sometimes they don't.